Hey guys, can my wife Jen join us for our Daft Punk episode? She is obsessed with them. Yes, but on one condition. Let us hear your best This Is Discord and Rhyme. Sure, if you insist. This is Discord and Rhyme. That'll do. everybody welcome to discord and rhyme a podcast where we buy it use it break it fix it trash it change it mail upgrade it and also discuss our favorite albums song by song robot roll call mike defabio rich Bennell, check me out chris <laughs> willie williams and we have a special guest jen carmen <laughs> <laughs> why don't you introduce yourself jen okay uh so am i i'm Jennifer Carmen, I'm married to Rich. That's kind of what got me in the door. I'm totally a beneficiary of nepotism as far as appearances <laughs> on this podcast go. Uh, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough. Okay. Yeah. All right. So now it's time to turn it over to this week's host, Rich. What album do you have for us, Rich? And why did you pick it? Well, we have received some feedback that we don't cover enough punk albums on this podcast. So I picked an album by Daft Punk. That counts, right? (laughs) Totally counts. Cool. Uh, And the album I chose is 2013's Random Access Memories. So I chose Daft Punk because they announced that they were disbanding just this past February. Uh, So covering them is a great chance to look back on their career. Uh, They're also one of Jen's favorite groups, and I've been looking for an excuse for her to guest on the show, thus completely fusing my podcast and personal lives at last. (laughs) As for Random Access Memories, I chose it because the album is basically a ready-made Discord and Rhyme episode, and I like it when the artists we cover do all of the work for us. So this album features some really serious geeking out about vintage synth and disco music, and Daft Punk pay tribute to musical pioneers like Nile Rodgers and Giorgio Moroder, uh, both of whom we'll be talking about soon, uh, while literally getting to work alongside them. But for all that, it's not just an exercise in cheap nostalgia. It's a very modern-sounding album, and it was huge for a brief, shining moment in 2013. Uh, It builds on everything Daft Punk had done before while suggesting like an interesting sort of hybrid analog-digital future for music uh, that the music industry ultimately decided not to pursue. (laughs) All right, so Rich, why don't you tell us about your history with Daft Punk? When did they first start playing at your house? (laughs) My house. (laughs) So uh, so before they started playing at my house, I, I first heard about Daft Punk around when they first hit the scene in the late 90s because a, a classmate in my high school freshman class told me, uh, hey, did you know that there's this song that just goes around the world, around the world, around the world, around the world? And I'd never heard electronica before, so... 
I didn't believe that this song could actually exist. Uh, but then I went to a then I went to a school mixer, which is what it was called when my Catholic high school for boys held a dance with the nearby Catholic high school for girls, uh, and everyone sort of stood around awkwardly or you know danced at arm's length with enough room for the baby Jesus. So these uh, these mixers featured big screens that would play music videos, and lo and behold, there was Michelle Gondry's trippy synesthetic video for Around the World. It turned out the song was real. <laughs> I properly got into Daft Punk much later, around 2004. Uh, at one point, I was helping my college girlfriend move, and a lot of her stuff was piled up in my apartment, including a big transparent box filled with CDs because uh, we were both ravenous music nerds. So I, I decided to put on Daft Punk's Discovery, and One More Time came on. And I'd never heard such a joyous, deliciously compressed-sounding fusion of modern electronica and the 80s music I loved so much. And I knew instantly that this this music was for me. Sorry that I've never introduced you to any cool bands, Rich. Uh, you introduced me to Flight of the Concords. <laughs> oh, that's true. Okay. Phew. Yeah, Jen was into Flight of the Concords <laughs> before they were cool. Anyway, as for Random Access Memories, I was already a fully recruited Daft Punk fan by the time it came out, so I don't have much of a story about that one. It came out, got a ton of press, and I liked it a lot. So much so that I am hosting a podcast episode about it. All right. So, Jen, when did when did Daft Punk first start playing at your house? <laughs> <laughs> Probably never. I never had a very cool house. But, yeah. <laughs> um, so Rich was asked in an earlier episode what my favorite band is. As I mentioned, uh, I am not the girlfriend with the cool taste in music. And he said, I don't know, probably Daft Punk, which is pretty much verbatim how I would answer the question if I would ask <laughs> if I were asked. Um, I'm not a music nerd the way that you guys are. So I don't. And this is just also the way that my brain works. I'm like, well. You know, if you declare one band to be your favorite forever, what does that say about you? And what does that say about <laughs> music? And what does it mean to be a favorite anyway? So I don't have like a definitive once and forever favorite band, but Daft Punk is definitely a band that I love. But it actually took me a while to get into them. And the first time that I heard them, I thought they were really annoying. <laughs> um, and so when I was a teenager, I maybe a freshman in college, I was up late at like 2 a.m. Uh, when One More Time came on while I was flipping on channels. I think it was on MTV or something. And so, you know, the dancing anime music video caught my attention and I stopped to listen and I thought it was catchy. And then I was like, and after about 30 seconds, I was like, okay, so this is the whole song. 
<laughs> so, but I was also definitely in a phase where I was like, uh oh, this song must be popular. So I need to find a reason not to like it. And <laughs> which I still do, like, which I still struggle with, like, not doing even as, as an adult, like that residual teenagerhood that you try to shed. Unless um, those, unless those songs are part of the Eurovision finals, which we watched yesterday. <laughs> as long as all of Europe likes the song. Yeah. <laughs> well, I never pick like my favorite Eurovision song is never the the one that wins. So, but that's okay. So, and also like for America, like that totally counts as being into like hipster like uh, you know, hipster weirdness. <laughs> yeah, so after that, I ignored Daft Punk altogether for several years. Uh, and but in my senior year of college, uh there was another attempt at getting into Daft Punk on the uh at least by the part of the universe. And so I watched the whole Interstellar 5555 movie, the the concept movie that's the animated movie that's based on the Discovery album. And so I watched that with some friends and I and I enjoyed it and it was fun, but at that time I was like, well this is fine, but it's not an indie boy singer-songwriter, which is pretty much the only <laughs> thing that I'm listening to right now. So, I'm not really interested in listening to this any further. So, again, I kind of ignored them for another 3 years. And then finally, uh I was working just in an office job doing data entry basically and you know, but listening to music to just kind of like get through the day. Uh, when Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger came on. And it just like kind of hit me like a bolt of lightning. Like the song was just like so great that it and it just hit me at like the right time in terms of my mood. And so after that, I tracked down their albums and Daft Punk became my kind of go to kind of comfort music band, especially when I'm feeling kind of anxious or overwhelmed. Like there's definitely a lot of like that repetitiveness of their music became a feature and not a bug for in terms of you know how i thought about them and i think that that's also part of their sound but it all but listening to them always kind of gives me a feeling of like i can do this of just like yeah i can <laughs> you know and so i listened to their other albums including of course random access memories but i didn't really dive into their history and artistry until this episode so i'm excited to get a chance to talk about it yeah these these albums are made by people it turns out (laughs) or or robots yeah as the case may be so as for me my uh initial reaction to daft punk was pretty close to jen's i i used to not like daft punk at all uh i i heard i think the first thing i heard by them was around the world and it it just it just sat there and did the same thing for seven minutes i i didn't know what the what the appeal of something like that was supposed to be and then I, I went back to listening to Autecker, which nobody can dance to and only smart people like me listen to. Then the Discovery album came out and I heard people talking about just how terrible it was. So I didn't bother <laughs> listening to that at all. And I forget how I stumbled across Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger, but it, it was pretty much the same uh, the same reaction that Jen had, which is wow this is this is actually pretty great and i i went and listened to 
the Discovery album. It turned out everybody who didn't like it was wrong. It was a wonderful album. Uh, it was it was like listening to a bag of Skittles. Uh, and that that was oh, that's why I that like was it. how. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's that was how I I learned that sometimes all you need to to make great music is a, a disco sample, uh, a low pass filter, and a, a Roland 909 drum machine with the shuffle turned all the way up. <laughs> so what does what do Skittles sound like to you? Discovery by Daft Punk. <laughs> Circular answer. It's just, it's just, it's it's colorful and uh, full of just joyful sweetness. And it's been sitting know. in that Vinstar machine in the mechanics <laughs> for about four years with dust on them. It's a little difficult to get your teeth into sometimes. <laughs> Well, based on Skittles commercials, it sounds either like pustules on a guy's face or uh, milk squirting from a giraffe's udder. They have the worst commercials. Ooh, they have yeah. the worst ads. Oh, I haven't seen those. Oh, they're so Ew. gross. It's like our wow. yeah. It's like our candy is like a disease. <laughs> Maybe I need a better metaphor. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, Will, what is your history with Daft Punk? On my 20th birthday, my friend Jim showed up at my house with wrapped copies of Daft Punk's debut album, Homework, and DJ Shadow's debut, Introducing. And as anyone who's heard both albums knows, it's no insult to Homework to say that it got trounced in that particular head-to-head match, because Introducing is such a dazzling watershed in electronic music. Yeah, I like Homework, but that's that's not even a contest right there. Yeah, exactly. I liked Homework too, though, and I went on to pick up Daft Punk's sophomore record, Discovery, about which I liked only two things. One, Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger, which I believe is the best dance track ever recorded. And two, I was driving along a back road in Maine listening to Discovery's infectiously repetitive song one more time when I came upon a junior ROTC that was marching to a cadence that perfectly matched the song's tempo. So I turned my stereo up as far as I could, open the windows, and drove alongside them for about half a mile as I watched them become <laughs> increasingly <laughs> resentful and murderous. <laughs> it's really dumb, I know, but it also made me laugh really hard for some reason, so that song always makes me smile. And troll that military-industrial complex. Exactly. I do what I can. <laughs> but the rest of Discovery left me cold, and Daft Punk sort of dropped off my radar until 2013, when Mike and Rich started going absolutely apeshit on Facebook about what a phenomenal album Random Excess Memories is, and they were right, as you will hear. But one quick note before we get to that. Um, this week I got word that Bert Topasky King, with whom I worked at Mathematical Reviews in Ann Arbor in the OOs, and who is one of my all-time favorite co-workers, passed away. Bert had been a San Francisco hippie back in the day, and he looked like Jerry Garcia, but he had the most open-minded appetite for music of all genres that I've ever known. We used to trade a few CDs back and forth every week, and he introduced me to everything from the great old psychedelic folk folk band It's a Beautiful Day to the captivating downbeat dubby electronica of Nicholas Jar, who will actually come up later in this episode. Bert had one of those delightful personalities that you wish could stick around to cheer up the world forever, and he did as much to broaden my musical horizons as any of my co-hosts here have over the years. I likely wouldn't be a cast member on the show if it weren't for him, so 
As cheesy as it may sound, I'd like to dedicate this episode to Bert's memory instead of dedicating it to Tom Sizemore, which we do with all our other episodes, despite no one <laughs> remembering why. That was a that was a lovely dedication. Thank you mm-hmm. for that. Thanks, Will. That was really oh, nice. Well, thank you. So he'll be missed. All right. So, Rich, why don't you tell us about the history of Daft Punk? Daft Punk is playing at my house, my house. I'll show you the ropes, kid. Show you the ropes. I got a bus and a trailer at my house, my house. Daft Punk's source code dates back to 1987 when Guy Manuel de Omem Cristo and Thomas Bangalter met as classmates at the same secondary school in Paris. This is very endearing to me because it puts them in the elite ween and they might be giants club of musical duos who have known each other since they were kids. They first collaborated in 1992 in the band Darlin, named after the 1967 Beach Boys hit, and one of their only recordings is a cover of the song. It's an instrumental cover. I could only barely pick out Darlin from there. (laughs) Darlin disbanded fairly quickly, and guitarist Laurent Brankowitz would go on to work with Phoenix, another band Jen likes. Oh! Apparently all French bands know each other or have worked (laughs) together. But that was long enough for a melody maker to describe their music as, quote, a daft punky thrash, end quote. And Guimon and Thomas officially had a name for their next project. So the duo started experimenting with dance music, influenced by a wide variety of artists we'll talk about later in the episode. They signed with the Scottish label Soma after giving their demo tape to the label's Stuart McMillan at a rave at Euro Disney, which is quite a place to hold a rave. Uh, It must have been pretty empty. (laughs) You know, that actually sounds like a really good description of Eurovision. This year's at least. You should see Goofy on E. (laughs) I, I, the, the main thing I wonder is if the electric light parade stopped by. <laughs> God, it would have been like, imagine what that would have been like for everyone. <laughs> so Daft Punk had their first hit in 1995 with the single Defunk, a, a grinding acid house groove with an innovative Spike Jones video uh, with the song playing diegetically from a boombox carried by a sad dog. And nobody acknowledges that he's a dog. It's kind of like Chicken Boo without the punchline. <laughs> So the accompanying album Homework was a huge success, and they followed it up in 2001 with Discovery, uh, which shifted their sound to disco and 80s R&B and saw the duo donning robot masks for the first time, an aesthetic they would maintain for the rest of their career. So Daft Punk were so instantly massively influential that by their third album, 2005's Human After All, they were struggling to maintain their own standard of innovation. Uh, But something changed for them in 2010 when they were hired to write the score for the film Tron Legacy. Guimon and Tomas saw this project as an opportunity to expand their palette, and they worked with music arranger and orchestrator Joseph Trapanese, whose job was to translate their ideas into arrangements for an 85-piece orchestra. As they put it, working with live musicians offered 
quote, an infinity of nuance in the shuffles and the grooves. These things were impossible to create with machines, end quote. As it turned out, Daft Punk were human after all. Which brings us to Random Access Memories. They began working on the album in 2008 with no clear sense of where to go with it, just a sense that they were on autopilot. But their experience with Tron Legacy added shape to their ambitions, and with this album, they aimed to bridge the analog music of the 70s and 80s with the digital EDM world they helped create. The instrumentation on Random Access Memories is almost 100% live in the studio, but shaped in post-production using the digital tools and techniques Daft Punk honed on their first three albums. As Thomas put it, we wanted to do what we used to do with machines and samplers, but with people. And that's where our program begins. All right. So before we get to random access memories, we have some new Patreon donors this week. Phil and Tony. Thanks, other two guys from Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, Patreon. Anyone who wants to support the production of this podcast with a monthly donation can do so at patreon.com slash discord pod. And as always, thank you to everyone who's been supporting us along the way. The show notes for this episode and our full episode archive are available on our website, discordpod.com, and you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you have any questions or feedback about the show or just want to drop us a line, we're on Twitter at discordpod, and you can email us at discordpod at gmail.com. And finally, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, it would help us out if you left us a rating or a review. And if you're not, spread the word any way you can. We're a small, independent podcast, and word of mouth is a critical way to help our audience grow. It's true. Uh, and before we move on, I'd also like to drop a plug for our friend Libby Cudmore's podcast, The OST Party. Uh, they just released an episode in March about Interstellar 5555, the anime-styled visual companion to Daft Punk's Discovery album that Jen mentioned earlier. Uh, they go through Discovery track by track, and I had a really great time listening to it. So again, OST Party, check it out. All right. And with that, let's get into the album. Track one is called Give Life Back to Music. this is going to be a dance party <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> a lot of our recordings turn out that way uh, including the mahavishnu orchestra one <laughs> weird time signature dance party <laughs> <laughs> that does sound like the discord and rhyme way and here we have discord and rhymes favorite kind of opening track a mission statement 
By the 2010s, Daft Punk were elder statesmen of electronic dance music, or elder states robots, if you want to call them that. Uh, but they were also old fuddy-duddies, and they looked at the EDM landscape they helped create and said, what hath we wrought? Tomorrow at one point told Enemy, quote, I don't know the EDM artists or the albums. At, at first, I thought it was all just one guy, some DJ called EDM, end quote. Uh, and they likened electronic music to a magic trick that everybody knows how to do. That's well put. So I don't want to be too reductive and like, you know, kids these days in this episode because you know, music changes and it leaves some people behind in the process. And that's just kind of how it goes. Uh, and there's plenty of modern electronic music I enjoy quite a bit. Uh, but I love what Daft Punk do with this opener, uh, kind of bridging the traditional Daft Punk sound with something like reverent to the music of the past, but also something new to them. Uh, because at its core, Give Life Back to Music is a typical repetitive Daft Punk song. It's the same phrase over and over. Uh, but what gives it life, so to speak, is the amazing arrangement. Uh, with John J.R. Robinson on drums, Chris Caswell and Chili Gonzalez on keyboards, Nathan East on bass, Greg Lice on pedal steel guitar. There's a lot of pedal steel on this album. It's interesting. Uh, Quinn, just Quinn on percussion and Paul Jackson Jr. and Nile Rodgers on guitar. Uh, I won't go into the personnel for every single track, but I'll make sure it's in the show notes. I, I just want to emphasize that this is a band we're dealing with here. So, Nile Rodgers. If you weren't aware, Nile Rodgers is the man. He was in Chic, he wrote Sister Sledge's We Are Family, and for decades he's been an influential and prolific producer, with credits including Let's Dance by David Bowie, uh, Like a Virgin by Madonna, Notorious by Duran Duran, <laughs> and Rome by the B-52s. Uh, there's a great episode of the Hit Parade podcast where Chris Melanfi goes into how much his production work reverberated onto the music of today. He is just massively influential and awesome. So on Give Life Back to Music, he plays his signature style of rhythm guitar. Uh, and I think his part on this song is meant to directly evoke Sheik's hit, Good Times. Good times. This is going to be a dance party. <laughs> so Good Times is the song the Sugar Hill Gang sampled on Rapper's Delight, the song that broke hip hop on the charts. So Daft Punk are nodding to a very broad musical tapestry here. And I could go on for an hour about just this song alone, but then I wouldn't get to talk about the rest of Random Access Memories. But uh, it's an outstanding statement of purpose. Yeah, just uh, quickly on the subject of Nile Rodgers, at the... At the the library where I work, we have a biography of Nile Rodgers, and the, the first thing it says on the on the flap, on the on the dust jacket is, you will hear a Nile Rodgers song today. It will make you happy. <laughs> and I think that sums it up pretty well. It does. So mm -hmm. the, the title of this song sounds like the sort of thing you see in the YouTube comments for every old song about how this is from <laughs> back when music was real, not fake like it is today. And I and I just happened to be in high school at the exact moment when they got music right. But <laughs> I'm I'm somebody who has made electronic music and specifically sample based music. So I understand what they're getting at here, because when you make music out of samples, it's a lot of fun in the beginning. But after a while, you kind of hit a wall. And what you really want to do is start making the kind of music that you would want to sample in the first place. And if you want to hear what that wall sounds like, just listen to Human After All. Like, there aren't a ton of samples on that album, but you can hear just the artistic stagnation setting in. Like, they needed mm -hmm. someplace else to go. 
the first time I listened to Human After All, I thought that I was like listening to the like like a fake version that they leaked to leaked to like Soulseek and Napster and well, I guess Napster didn't exist anymore. But uh, you know that you know how artists used yeah. to do that, like they, they leaked like a bad album instead of the one that they actually released. But it turned out to really be <laughs> Human After All. I think a lot of people suspected that. Yeah. So I I don't have the kind of musical talent that it would take to make the, the sort of album that I personally would want to sample and. I, I suspect Daft Punk probably don't either, but they have a lot of very talented friends, which helps <laughs> a lot. I love the way this song starts the album by wowing you with this really big, expensive sounding production. But after that, it settles into this very laid back groove with a lot of space in the mix. It's like they really want you to get comfortable when you listen to this album mm-hmm. in a nice, nice chair. Maybe one of those one of those Le, Cor- Le Corbusier jobs. Yeah, or one of those wicker chairs that's on the cover of, like, half of all albums in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> in, in Daft Punk's case, maybe one of those, like, egg-shaped kind of things. That's what I was uh, picturing. Yeah, that's true. That seems more robotic. <laughs> yeah. And even when you look at the, the label on the CD and the vinyl, it, it looks like the old red Columbia Records label, just, just to give you that feeling. But, uh, Jen, what do you think of this one? So for my part... I actually have a brief presentation to give to you. Yeah. (laughs) So it's actually really building on what you and Rich have been talking about of just like what this represented in terms of what Daft Punk is trying to do in terms of their sound. So what I did is pull some clips of the opening 10, 15 seconds or so of each of Daft Punk's studio albums uh, just to demonstrate what is going on, like how they start the album for each of their albums. So this is a clip from the first song on their first album, Dafton Direct. Yeah. Let's say that that's how it's pronounced. I like that. Yeah, it's I mean, it's great, but it's also very like like it's not it's not bad. It's just that it's very processed right it's very Mm -hmm. artificial sounding but it also sounds like something that somebody made on a computer in their house and so then next is one more time one more time (laughs) sorry force of habit it's okay it's it, it is where your brain goes again like it's definitely much more upbeat and m- there's a lot more going on musically because of the sample that they pulled on there but it's still very processed sounding it's still mm-hmm. very artificial sounding and then there's human after all Sorry, force of habit again. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's all catchy and bouncy and all of those things, but also super process sounding. And then you hear the beginning of Give Life Back to Music. Yeah, it's like this was recorded in a room, fools. Yeah. 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 Well, because all of their previous albums, they literally made at their houses. Like they made their first two albums in 
one of their like in one of their bedrooms, like literally just like on a computer. And so especially for me, having listened to their previous albums and not really knowing what to expect with this album. The first time I heard the opening of Give Life Back to Music, like the, the just those first few seconds, for me, it was just like a whoa <laughs> kind of response of just how radically different they their sound was on this album. Mm-hmm. It's just, it sounds like what, like in terms of the tone, like it's still very, it's not wildly different. It's fun and dancey and all of those things. But in terms of, how they make that sound, it's totally different. And it sounds, yeah, much more alive. So, Will, what, what's your take on this one? Well, I think uh, current artists who attempt to create the slickness of 70s disco funk glam often wind up making something that sounds just a touch anemic. I tend to think it's because backward-looking artists like the Chromatics or Cut Copy or Phoenix, who you mentioned earlier, all of whom I like, Uh, home in on the emotional superficiality and artifice of that scene, which logically leads them to modern electronics. And that can wind up sounding pretty desolate and dinky, if not downright inert. But Daft Punk recognizes that while there was plenty of superficiality to go around in the 70s, even the key parties and the coked-up Studio 54 bacchanals of the time were born out of humans' real desire to make some sort of connection with each other. You know, the music of the scene may have often been lowbrow, but it still felt vibrant and sweaty and was swaddled in rich, velvety, veiny production that was performed rather than programmed. Mm-hmm. And for the very first second, Give Life Back to Music booms out, booms out of your headphones. You can hear that Daft Punk is holding the song's title aloft as a mission statement, like Rich said, for this album. Yeah, we'll get to more of this later, but there's a surprising amount of warmth to to Daft Punk's music, considering that it's, like, theoretically the product of two robots. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was one thing that I also wanted to add from this song when I was listening to it, that around the three-and-a-half-minute mark, they put, bring in some backing vocals that were not like or some background vocalization that makes it sound like it's being played for a crowd like you hear people kind of cheering like it's like a backyard party yeah Yeah, which I really like about this song. Like, it gives it this very, like, we're around people. And remember what that <laughs> <Yeah>. was like? <laughs> <laughs> I guess one thing I should say related to that is that, uh, I mean, this song, I don't know if this song was necessarily recorded with all of the different players in the same room. Uh, I mean, maybe different combinations of them were, but it, it, it is still like a studio patchwork. It's just all individually recorded live musicians, which is very different from the Daft Punk process in the past. That is definitely two different Nile Rodgers playing together i I know that (laughs) they didn't clone him (laughs) they were like this is the dream (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right so we've already discussed the book of love so track two on random excess memories is the game of love oh i'm dancing again Oops, my bad. That was The Game of Love by Santana featuring Michelle Branch, which I actually like more than the Daft Punk song. It's a bop. Uh, Here's the inferior The Game of Love. There is a game of love. 
Why was I programmed to feel pain? <laughs> <laughs> so despite my overture earlier, uh, I, I don't hate The Game of Love, but it's probably my least favorite song on the album, and I think that's a pretty common stance. Uh, I, I guess as a lover of a good track, too, this should be disappointing to me. But on the other hand, it takes a lot of confidence not to just front load your album with bangers. Uh, and it indicates to me that Daft Punk were, in fact, treating Random Access Memories as an album, which was already getting increasingly rare by 2013. Now, it's not a bad song at all. And if you've got good headphones, it's fun to just lie down and like let your head float in the production because there's a lot of really cool stuff going on uh, in almost any given Daft Punk song. Uh, but this, but to me, this is the only song on the album where it feels like Daft Punk are retreading old ground. Uh, and in particular, it sounds a lot like their slow jam, Something About Us, from the Discovery album. It might not be the right time. I might not be... The right one But there's something about us I want to say Cause there's something between us anyway I might not be the right one yeah, Something About Us is also my least favorite song from Discovery. Maybe that's a controversial take. I, I, I've really never heard any opinions about it one way or the other, so I'll <laughs> let it slide, I guess. <laughs> I've, I've heard a lot of people... A lot of people seem to like something about us a lot it's never been one of my huge favorites but that's about all i've got for this song except that just like on give life back to music the vocals are run through a vocoder which is the sine qua non of daft punk producer mike what's a vocoder the vocoder was invented all the way back in 1938 by homer dudley of bell labs it was originally intended as a means of encrypting radio transmissions but in the decades since it has become the cool way to sound like a robot. In order to understand how the vocoder works, one must first understand how the human voice itself works. The vocal cords create a basic sound rich in overtones, and this basic sound is then filtered through a complex series of articulators, which contort themselves horribly to create the sounds we call speech. A vocoder analyzes the spectral contents of speech by splitting the signal from a microphone into several different frequency bands, discarding the basic sound altogether. This information can then be used to filter any other sound in the same way. To demonstrate this, I must confess that we were not being entirely honest in the introduction to this episode. Here is the actual recording of Jen doing her best robot voice. This is Discord and Rhyme. A valiant effort to be sure, but not quite what we needed. But if we use a vocoder, with Jen as the modulator signal, and I play this on the synthesizer, to use as the carrier signal, we get this. This is Discord and Rhyme. Now, the vocoder is often confused with two other commonly used vocal effects. The first is the talk box, popularized by the likes of Peter Frampton and Zap. The talk box has a similar sound to the vocoder, but achieves it in more of a low-budget way. It's essentially a tube that goes into a performer's mouth, which becomes a resonating chamber. You could actually get a similar effect by holding your phone's speaker up to your mouth and mouthing some words. The other of these is autotune, which does exactly what the name says. It automatically changes the pitch of a note being sung to fit a predetermined scale, without any added instrumental input. 
It has often been confused with the vocoder, because after the success of Cher's Believe, its producers wanted to keep its famous vocal effect a secret, so they lied and said it was a vocoder. Daft Punk have been known to use all three of these effects, and from now on we expect you to identify all of them correctly. Thanks, producer Mike. I hope one day I can be as cool as you. <laughs> Jen, what do you think of this one? So I had a similar response to Rich of just like initially it was my least favorite. And like I said, it rem it also reminds me of something about us. Uh, but it did grow on me listening to it for this show, maybe because I was listening to it more closely on headphones. I think that it's kind of interesting the way that it sets up the rest of the album, like Rich was saying, that it's an album track in a very classical sort of sense. It sets up Giorgio by Marauder, the next song, really well. It also kind of sets the tone that this is a this is kind of a sexier Daft Punk than has existed in pre in previous albums. Like in previous albums, I would say that Daft Punk were pretty sexless honestly, but this has like a walk a chick a guitar. It has like, and it's just a little bit more, you know, about sensuality and getting close to people and which comes up a lot more, especially in the songs with Pharrell. So these robots are now fully functional. These robots are fully functional. <laughs> yes. These are robots who are participating in the naked now. Ah, <laughs> oh, finally, someone who will get my Star Trek jokes. <laughs> I am programmed in multiple techniques. But also in like the sort of humanization. I mean, that is part of also the humanization of them as robots. But I thought it was really interesting listening to it because there's one point late in the song where you actually audibly hear whoever is singing it aspirate on the microphone. Hmm. And which, you know, they're control freaks about their sound. And if they wanted to edit that sound out, they could have. And so it's just interesting to hear somebody go... As the like right before a line starts and it's just like, oh, yeah, it's again like the there are people behind this. It also I know that producer Mike has already given his amazing information about vocoders, but I would really like to know about vintage vocoders because the production notes say that, that that's what they used for this song. And so is there. How is that sound different from what gets used in like modern software? Ah, you but, know, I. I'm not sure I'd be able to, to tell the difference, honestly, if, if they were used right. But it's it's vintage. Any kind of vintage electronics are going to have that very old school kind of warmth to them that a, a software plugin isn't going to have. I do know that they worked with a whole bunch of different vocoders and they worked just like tirelessly for hours and hours, get like finessing the sound of each uh, each one of their vocals. Yeah. So what does a vintage vocoder even look like? <laughs> I've never seen one, so I can't okay. I can't really say. I mean, I know back in the day, like back in the 70s, you couldn't even get a, a vocoder. You had to you had to rent one or you had to you had to be at a studio that had one. You're these very mysterious machines. <laughs> so is it like so is it set up like an amp or like a wall? Like what? Like just a bunch of chords? <laughs> I just looked up on Google image search and I'm seeing a lot of keyboards with a bunch of like box with a box attached to them with a bunch of dials and yeah. like plugs and stuff on it. I'm picturing uh, the Whopper for more games. <laughs> <laughs> so around the time this album came out, I was down in Los Angeles visiting my friend Ashley. And after she picked me up from the airport, we were driving around looking for something to eat. And I got my iPod out with all my music on it. And I said, what do you want to hear? And she said, something dancey. And I said, I've got the new Def Punk album. 
So I put it on while we drove around, and when we got to track two, I realized that this was a much more ballady album than I remembered. I do think it's an effective track two if you've accepted that this is going to be a different kind of Daft Punk album. Like, they really want you to luxuriate in the production here. Uh, yeah. It, it kind of sounds like they're they're going for an Alan Parsons kind of feel on this one. Well, uh, Dark Side, I mean, he engineered Dark Side of the Moon, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dark Side, and I know for a fact that Dark Side of the Moon was a huge influence on this album in particular. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. I really love this one. As Mike explained, there are a number of ways to make a machine sound alive or make a human sound like a machine, and musicians have been playing with the intersection of the two for decades upon decades. Take, for instance, this old recording from an unknown computer engineer that would have possessed an uncanny valley spookiness even if Stanley Kubrick hadn't appropriated it for the, uh, for the HAL 9000. In the next selection, the computer sings a familiar ditty. But however Daft Punk manipulated their custom modular vocoder setup, they are the best I've ever heard at making their human vocals sound like a robot that could come full circle and pass the Turing test. This melody is beautifully mournful, and if you suspend your disbelief for a moment, you could totally buy this as a ballad somehow hidden in the code of a heartbroken android's BIOS log. <laughs> That's probably a computer term. Yeah, Phil's not here. I think he's the programmer among our group. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, the song is also packed with those little touches that you're un unlikely to notice right away, such as the pedal steel that Rich mentioned. And also the stereo separation between two muted guitars that are playing just slightly different parts. It really exemplifies the care that went into this record. And I, I like it a lot. All right. So let's move on to track three, The New Fragrance, Giorgio by Maroder. <laughs> if you like Giorgio, you'll love Primo. I think a lot of dudes would buy Giorgio by Maroder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to do an album with the sounds of the 50s, the sounds of the 60s, of the 70s, and then have a sound of the future. And I said, wait a second, I know the synthesizer. Why don't I use the synthesizer, which is the sound of the future? And I didn't have any idea what to do, but I knew I needed a click. So we put a click on the 24 track, which then was synced to the Moog modular. I knew that could be a sound of the future, but I didn't realize how much the impact would be. My name is Giovanni Giorgio, but everybody calls me Giorgio. I love the moment when the synths kick in. There's a real mm -hmm. sense of drama to it that yeah. isn't really present on their earlier albums. And uh, you, you can tell that Daft Punk have had some experience with film scoring by this point. So the true random access memories begins here. 
Giorgio by Moroder is the first of two epics on the album, and it begins with a monologue from Italian record producer Giorgio Moroder. So, who is Giorgio Moroder? Basically, without Giorgio Moroder, there would not only be no Daft Punk, there would be no electronic dance music as we know it. Uh, he's often called the father of disco, and so I'm hesitant to put that all on him because disco has roots in African-American genres like gospel and R&B, uh, producers like Motown's Norman Whitfield, and bands like Sly and the Family Stone. But Marauder was a pivotal figure in turning disco into a chart juggernaut in the late 70s and pioneering synthesizers as a lead instrument in general. Uh, he's best known for his work with Donna Summer, and he produced hits for her including Love to Love You Baby, Hot Stuff, Last Dance, Bad Girls, and most notably, I Feel Love, whose arpeggiated Moog synth line helped throw open the doors for uh, new wave, synth pop, and techno. This all has the makings of a stuffy music history lesson, but Daft Punk turned it into a banger and kind of a prog banger at that. This is another album that turned out to be prog. <laughs> there is such a thing as a prog banger. It's true. <laughs> the, the midsection features a keyboard solo by Chris Caswell, reminiscent of jazz fusion greats like Herbie Hancock. returns to deliver his closing statement. Once you free your mind about the concept of uh, harmony and of music being correct, you can do whatever you want. So nobody told me what to do, and there was no preconception of what to do. There's a lot of prescriptivism in the music criticism world, the idea that there's like one right answer to what music should be. Uh, and hearing such a major figure say outright that this is all BS, that music is a world with boundless possibility, that you can do whatever you want, it, it hits me right here. So in line with that, the rest of the song is just a joyous explosion of music. The main synth line returns in full force, accompanied by orchestral strings and hot drumming from Omar Hakim, a session drummer whose credits include both Miles Davis and the Pussycat Dolls. <laughs> Don't 
Don't you wish your drumming was hot like that? <laughs> Finally, the song builds to a crescendo, followed by a modular synth sputtering to the finish line. is noise what do you all think this was the point where i realized that the new daft punk album wasn't just good but something special yeah this is made for you mike <laughs> yeah you can say that again i don't know if i've ever heard another song like this and i had no idea that daft punk had it in them to create this multi-part prog disco epic about giorgio Moroder's life there are more ideas in this song than there are on the entire homework album. Uh, I'm not going to go through and reiterate everything that Rich already said because he did a pretty good job of it, but uh, pretty good, just pretty good. Just all right. But there are a few neat little details that I would like to point out. Uh, first of all, Giorgio Moroder's monologue was recorded with three different microphones, each one dating from a different phase of his career that they would use in, in <laughs> the corresponding parts of the song. Yeah, I saw that too. And he didn't understand why they went through the trouble to do that since nobody listening would know the difference. But Toma looked over at Gee-Man and said, he can tell the difference. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it's never mentioned uh, by name in the song, but the album Marauder talks about making is I Remember Yesterday by Donna Summer which starts out with a disco version of flapper music and ends with I Feel Love, the song meant to represent the sound of the future. And in fact, when Brian Eno first heard that song, he ran into the studio where he was working with David Bowie and announced, I've just heard the sound of the future. <laughs> and it was, basically. It was. Brian Eno's always right. Uh, I'm not sure if this was an intentional reference or not, but the very end of this song reminds me of a particularly cool moment in Carline Stockhausen's 1960 electronic composition, Contacta. That's a note becoming a rhythm and a rhythm becoming a melody. It's all the same thing. Music is awesome. <laughs> I, I, I agree with that statement. <laughs> and just as a side note, if you like Omar Hakim's drumming on this album and you want to hear something else where he's on fire, check out Kate Bush's live album Before the Dawn. She mixed him way up front and it's easy to hear why. Uh, but Will, what do you think of this one? Well, even... A nine-minute epic like this can't make for a comprehensive memoir, but it's still kind of nifty to hear just a snippet of Marauder reminiscing about what went into his 
uniquely wholesome brand of disco, bearing in mind that in Italy, wholesome means the equivalent of a chest hair flaunting stranger accosting you at a bar, pointedly, lasciviously licking his lips as he looks you up and down, and then telling you that he and the wife have an understanding. <laughs> hey, man, Italy just won Eurovision. They did. <laughs> Show them some respect. <laughs> But Daft Punk obviously looks up to the guy and gives him and his legacy of Italo disco innovation a breathtaking tribute here. The arrangement bounds all over the place without breaking stride. One minute it's disco funk guitars and electric piano. The next it's got record scratching providing some chiaroscuro shading to a bass solo. And the duo makes it flow logically. It's a bravura ode to one of their heroes and every single thing about it wows me. All right, Jen, what do you think? So I want to start by kind of orienting this in the history of dance music, because dance music emerged, um, as you as you guys have been talking about, it emerged really from communities of color and from the LGBTQ community. Uh, and it's really about music of like resilience and finding joy in the face of struggle. And part of what has happened, not Daft Punk's fault, but part of the movement that you know, their popularizing of EDM happened was that it is that dance music started to become not that it became, you know, the music of like Calvin Harris and like DJ Marshmallow and like, you know, like <laughs> it started becoming like this, this realm and, um, and dead mouse. And like, it started becoming the realm of, you know, straight white guys, uh, as it became more popular. And so part of what they were doing with this album is like reintroducing these historical figures and reminding you where dance music came from, that it came from this place of artists who were struggling and people who just wanted to find joy in the face of struggle. And I think that like what Giorgio Moroder is talking about, you know, like I think he describes at one point basically living out of his car so that he could make music. And that's really important to remember, but also that it is reintroducing specific figures from the past who were, I think, in danger of being lost. Like Giorgio Moroder had basically retired by the time this song came out, I think. Like this song in particular led to a career resurgence for him. And like for me, like as I've mentioned, not a music nerd, I'd never even heard of Giorgio Moroder before I heard this song. Like, and so it led someone like me to be like, who is Giorgio Moroder? Oh, it turns out he made a lot of really important music with a lot of very influential and important artists. And so that act of just like resurrecting someone, I think, is really important. It's something that's been important to Daft Punk from the beginning because on their first album, they had a song called Teachers that was basically just them doing a spoken word listing of all of their major influences. And so for them, honoring their influences has always been a really important part of their of their production and of their sound. Like even when they were relying a lot on uh, sample heavy music, they were like, they've been very conscientious about crediting the artists whose samples they used and they're usually credited as songwriters. So this song I think is part of that legacy. Yeah, Def Punk are notoriously like reclusive and don't give a lot of interviews. They they did a few for this album, but Giorgio Moroder like did a ton of interviews after this came out because there was like a surge of interest in him. And he released an uh, he released an album with a bunch of guest stars and stuff in like 2015, I think. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's definitely cool that they put the spotlight on him like that. 
Is the album any good? Have you heard uh, it? There's, there's a really good song featuring Kylie Minogue, uh, but apparently the rest of it isn't that great. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, as is my brand, I love the Kylie song. <laughs> yes, <laughs> of course. The only other thing that I wanted to add about this song in terms of its sound is I really love that it brings in the strings. Yeah. Uh, like the big strings. But it's also really interesting from like the historical dance music perspective of like they are very um, orchestral strings, very like Tron Legacy soundtrack epic strings and not like disco strings. Like this does not sound like the violin that you hear in like I Will Survive or mm. Rasputin. Like it's a it's definitely like a different kind of use of them. Yeah, and they, they they come in right after Giorgio Moroder's talking about how you can do anything you want. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so after after that epic, we're going to need uh, something of a breather. So track four is Within. So Within opens with about a minute of solo piano performed by Chili Gonzalez. had Gonzalez in the studio for a full day with Guimond and Tomag coaching him like a film director coaches an actor. Uh, and he left the studio with no idea of what would end up on the final album. Uh, but it was a true collaboration. Uh, Gonzalez has a reputation as a go-to guy to help electronic musicians solve harmonic problems. Uh, and a side note, he's also a rapper, apparently. Hmm. But anyway, he goes into this process in the YouTube series The Collaborators, which was released as part of the promotional campaign for this album. The first three tracks on Random Access Memories are in the key of A minor, and Gonzalez's piano intro helps transition the album into B flat minor, uh, which is the key for the next uh, few songs. This is getting a bit into the weeds with music theory, but the point I'm trying to make is that it shows again that Daft Punk envisioned Random Access Memories as a completely coherent work uh, where the songs build and flow into one another. This is an album. So after Gonzalez hits on the main motif of the song, it transitions into another sad robot ballad. There are so many things that I don't understand. There's a world within me that I cannot explain. Many rooms to explore, but the doors look the same. Mark Tree. <laughs> I'm so glad I learned that term from this show. For me, Within is a good example of the kind of lyrical tightrope Daft Punk managed to walk on this album, because uh, if this song were sung by Coldplay, I'd probably <laughs> scoff at lyrics like, there's a world within me that I cannot explain, many rooms to explore, but the doors look the same. But somehow singing the song through a vocoder adds just enough distance that I find the song really moving. Uh, there's a sincerity to Daft Punk that really sells their cornball lyrics, and I think Within is a signature example of this tendency. 
Oh, if Chris Martin saying that, it would be terrible. <laughs> uh, Will, what do you think? Yeah, I, th- I like that Daft Punk had the guts to record a few electronic ballads for this album, letting the dance floor cool off and allowing us to catch our breath after filling the room with energy on songs like Giorgio. They could have easily just filled the whole record with blasting disco hooks and electricity, and it would have been solid. But I think it makes for a much richer listening experience when the album could conceivably extract tears in addition to the sweat and other bodily fluids they elicit with other songs. This song's robo-narrator could be the same character that sings the game of love going through a post-breakup identity crisis, in fact. And I, I also find it quite affecting, even if it does remind me of the hilarious existential crisis of the butter-passing robot from Rick and Morty. What is my purpose? You pass butter. Oh my god. Yeah, welcome to the club, pal. (laughs) (laughs) Jen, what do you think? So, when I first heard this song, I was like, what is this? Is this even Daft Punk? Like, the coming in of the, the piano part that Rich played, like, it was genuinely surprising to me when I first heard this album. And, but it's also a song that I've really grown to like a lot. I really like, it's a very, like, just because it's different doesn't mean that it's bad, but it was also, but I think that there are a lot of moments of that, of just like, this is not what I expected from Daft Punk on this album. And that was a big moment of that for me. And so, but I really like the the extended use of the piano, like especially like not just keyboards, which come in later in the song, but actual, you can tell that it's an actual piano that's being used. And that sounds really cool. And I think that I kind of had a similar reaction to this song that Will was describing for Game of Love of like this blending of analog sound and synthetic vocals and like artificial vocals. Yeah, to bring those together in a way that I really liked. And I actually... And even though I think that this song is very similar in a lot of ways to Game of Love in terms of like its tone and what it's doing in the album, that it's also kind of a transitional, like it's very deliberately a transitional song between Giorgio by Maroder and all of the songs that come after. But this one resonates with me more. I don't know if I can explain why. There are things within me that I cannot explain. (laughs) Yeah, Daft Punk might be robots, but they're robots with a lot of feelings. And uh, I think a big part of their appeal for me is just how unashamed they are to be completely cheesily sincere. Like, you have to understand, Daft Punk are French. It's not just (laughs) cheese. It's fromage. They're artisans of this stuff. And Within isn't one of my absolute favorites on the album or anything, but I do understand why it's there. And I really appreciate how much thought they put into the sequencing. Mm -hmm. Uh I would also like to point out the similarity between this song and the opening to the song Burden by Opeth from their album Watershed, where they were starting to transition away from growly death metal into straight 1971 style prog. Thank you. 
had to let the clip go on long enough to, for the Mellotron to fade in. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Gotta get that Mellotron. Gotta get that Mellotron, man. Daft Punk or Prague, Exhibit B. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, several Opeth albums were produced by Stephen Wilson, who worked on remixing the King Crimson catalog alongside Robert Fripp, who played guitar on Heroes and Scary Monsters by David Bowie, whose album Let's Dance was produced by Niall Rogers, who appears on Random Access Memories by Daft Punk. Is, there, is Kevin Bacon anywhere in that chain? I was just about to make a Kevin Bacon chain. <laughs> He's always around. And with that, let's move on to track five. Oh, I actually wanted to jump in. Oh, you do? With, okay. Because you made me think of something uh, with okay. what you were just talking about. Uh, to your point of that, the, that Daft Punk are emotional robots, it made me think that I don't think that their sound would work as well if they weren't robots. That and oh, like yeah. the emotionalness of their music would not work if they didn't have these robot personas, which gets into my kind of overall thesis of Daft Punk, which is that they are drag queens for straight dudes. <laughs> that they, <laughs> that like they have they have this very cultivated persona that is meant to be both like protective but like artistic in this way that you actually see a lot with like with drag. But it also lets them access emotions like very sincere emotions like like the like you were saying earlier this wouldn't work as a Coldplay song if it were Coldplay you'd be like oh god like this is just <laughs> unbearable but with that added distance of these robot personas it really makes it work in this really interesting way mm -hmm. I just thought that was a really good point that I wanted to add to yeah RuPaul's robot drag race yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah very perceptive so let's move on to track five, Instant Crush. Access Memories as an album with three movements, kind of like a symphony or, or a concert with two act breaks, sort of like Stop Making Sense by Talking Heads. Uh, the first four tracks are in relatively familiar electronic territory for Daft Punk, and they do all of the singing. The second batch of four is the album show-stopping centerpiece, where they hand over vocals to a slate of huge guest stars. Instant Crush has a lead vocal by Julian Casablancas from The Strokes. Daft Punk love The Strokes, and they're on record as saying that they're the band that they would have wanted to sound like had they remained a rock band. Mm -hmm. 
Casablancas is almost unrecognizable in Instant Crush, in part because he croons and murmurs his part in a very unstrokes-like fashion, uh, but also because uh, Daft Punk run his vocals through a ton of autotune. So uh, autotune takes a lot of guff, but to me and to Daft Punk, uh, the really heinous kind of autotune is the kind you can't hear. The Shania Twain kind, where they iron out all of the wrinkles and every singer is at the same level of boring perfection. And I'm, sh- and I'm sorry, Shania Twain, if you're listening. Which I'm sure you are. Uh, The (laughs) autotune here is more in the style of 808s and Heartbreak by Kanye West, where it sounds like the singer's voice is like bursting apart at the seams, all of the imperfections bared for the listener, and it it makes Casablanca sound oddly vulnerable. Uh, So I enjoyed the song just fine when Random Access Memories came out, but after listening to it on repeat in preparation for this episode, uh, it honestly might be my favorite song on the album, or it's close at least. Uh, For a band that self-styles as robots, Daft Punk really have a lot of love songs. Uh, And so as the title suggests, Instant Crush is about looking back at a childhood crush and reminiscing on what could have been. And that's it. It's very simple and very relatable uh, in a way that reminds me of uh, Computer Love by Kraftwerk, the original sad robot love song. Yeah. Speaking of Coldplay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Will, what do you think of this one? This is also my favorite song on the album. And it contains my very favorite moment on the album, where Casablancas pulls a James Brown and pretends that he's too overwhelmed to go on, singing, oh, take it, I don't want to sing anymore. And then he hands things over to himself to play the guitar solo. I did not land on that interpretation of that line. I love it. <laughs> you could just see one of the Daft Punk guys going over and putting a cape on him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I guess that also recalls some of Old Dirty Bastard's songs where one of his vocal tracks starts arguing with another one of his vocal tracks, which <laughs> makes me equally happy. But I also enjoyed that this song gives us something of a narrative, which sets it apart from the more repetitive likes of doing it right or give life back to music. On Strokes albums, Casablancas always maintains a generally effective deadpan distance. So even with the assistance of the vocoder, the emoting and instant crush is a standout in in his body of work. And if you're in the mood, you could be legitimately moved by the story of what I took to be a guy having an affair with someone who's already in a relationship and the splattery stress that um, results and threatens to fracture their friendship. It's the I, I think it's the apex of this album's motif of trying desperately and acknowledging the futility of bridging the gap between individuals and truly connecting, even if the song just has you picturing two Asamos with sad faces. <laughs> <laughs> and Jen, what do you think of this one? I actually don't have a whole lot to say about this song. Weirdly, I really, really like it. It's a song that I really enjoy, but... 
One thing that I thought was interesting was that this is the first love song that's delivered in a sort of robot voice that's not one of Daft Punk's voices, like not hmm. whichever one of them sings. And so <laughs> they assimilated him. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they did. <laughs> but I yeah, but I also really enjoy this song. It's not my favorite on the album we'll get to my favorite on the album but i do really like that sort of bittersweet feeling like there's definitely a naive feeling to this song to me of just like we'll never be alone again because this doesn't happen every day and it's like (laughs) like when you first have that feeling of attraction and for to someone like it does feel that way like when you have that feeling of developing a crush on someone it does feel that way like oh this is so amazing and special but it's also like and 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 like oh this is never like we'll never be alone again like but that's not like but it is a very fleeting feeling as well like as you're as you get to know each other as your relationship develops as it maybe turns out that that person isn't interested in you. All of those kind of feelings of when that initial feeling hits reality. But that's not what this song is about. (laughs) (laughs) And so one thing that was interesting to me was when Daft Punk was doing the promotion for this album, they put together a series of videos called The Collaborators with all of the best-known collaborators that they brought in as guests on this album. And the only one who didn't appear was Julian Casablancas. And I didn't know why that was. I assumed that maybe he was on tour in some capacity, but I thought that that was, I thought that that was interesting because I thought that his, like his presence on this song is really big and like there's, yeah, but it's that's vital. all I had to say about yeah. that. Yeah, it's, it is. And I think that also with this song, it's really the the most well not the most but it's a lot of Daft Punk blending their sound with somebody else's sound which I really liked and I the only reason that I mentioned the collaborators is that I kind of wish that we'd gotten to hear from Julian Casablancas's perspective what it was like to work with Daft Punk the way that we heard from the other artists but timing doesn't always work out I guess yeah so I don't like the idea that autotune or for that matter dime dynamic compression or anything else that's essentially just another tool in your bag of tricks can be inherently bad. But I do think that Daft Punk are two of the only people in the world who manage to use it in any kind of interesting way. They don't just slap it on the vocal track and call it a day because that's what you do. They, they really finesse it. Mm-hmm. Like you can tell they really fussed over the, the auto, every little glitch in the auto tune mm-hmm. on this song. Every mm-hmm. second of this album is endlessly fussed over, I promise you. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to be a very vocal non-fan of the strokes. And I've softened on them over the years, but I still like this more than any stroke song I know. It's it's a really fun detour into new wave, and I like that ch- that rhythmic change up on the chorus a lot. Also, uh, Amanda, who is uh running the clips for this episode, uh jumped in and alerted me to the fact that this song sounds a lot like the Alan Parsons project's Eye in the Sky. With that, let's move on to track six, Lose Yourself to Dance. Just to take a break this often I know your life is speed 
how he cues in a guitar to start playing that's already playing? Lose yourself to dance. Lose yourself to dance. There's the mark tree again. Another mark tree. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here we have the return of Nile Rodgers, this time joined on vocals by Pharrell Williams. So Daft Punk teamed up with Williams after a chance meeting at a party, but but I like to think this song was destined to happen, because in a lot of ways, Pharrell Williams is kind of the 21st century successor to Nile Rodgers. Uh, he built his name as half of the production duo The Neptunes with Chad Hugo, uh, and they produced hits including Got Your Money by Old Dirty Bastard, ODB again, a Milkshake <laughs> by Khalees, Hollaback Girl by Gwen Stefani, and Drop It Like It's Hot by Snoop Dogg. Uh, they have a distinctive minimalist production style that sh- shaped 2000s R&B much in the same way Nile Rodgers shaped the music of the 70s and 80s. And uh, uh, their music has a lot of distinct characteristics from Nile Rodgers' production style. It's not a one-to-one thing, but they're both like massively influential in kind of the same way. And uh, Nelly's hit single, Hot in Here, also a Neptune's production, uh, has a rhythm guitar part that to me sounds like it could fit into a Nile Rodgers song. No deceiving, nothing up my sleeping, no teasing, I need you to get up up on a Lose Yourself to Dance kind of speaks for itself. It's stomping disco funk that's somewhat reminiscent of Prince. And the best part for me is the first two minutes where Daft Punk step out of the way of the masters and just let them take center stage. Uh, after that, the vocoders show up at the two-minute mark and gradually build into a choral cascade. Uh, and for me, it's a bit much, but it's not bad. And hey, it's their album. <laughs> I love the vocoder section. That's my favorite part of the song. Uh, it, that's like, that's like, you know, it's, it's a regular night at the disco and then robots show up on the dance floor and then it's the best night ever. I, I like, I like it. It just goes on for, it, ta- it takes up like two thirds of the song. And I think it, I, I think it's a bit extra for me, but I, I like it when it first shows up. Yeah. I have a karaoke story about this song actually on that because it seems like when you stand up that it's going to be a duet. When you stand up, one person will be Pharrell and then one of them will be, you know, the Daft Punk person who comes in, um, you know, going, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. (laughs) And but then toward the end. A second vocoder part comes right. in, like, and th- then you have to choose, like, <laughs> and it made it so difficult of like the, um, you know, everybody's dancing on the floor, <laughs> getting ready more and more, and because by that point you're also really sick of singing the come on, 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 and so, yeah, so it it makes it an interesting karaoke challenge this is one of those <laughs> maybe i'll try at the next discord of mime retreat this is this is one of those karaoke nightmare songs where it, it just goes on for so much longer than you think it does it all, that is also true yeah I've, I've seen some people criticize this one for being too repetitive but first of all why are you listening to daft punk and <laughs> second it's called lose yourself to dance not lose yourself to in-depth analysis 
Uh, that sounds like something I would do, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also think this would be a good time to mention uh, the remix album Random Access Memories Memories by a duo <laughs> called Darkside, which Will introduced me to. And uh, as an example of the great care and consideration they put into the project, here is their remix of Lose Yourself to Dance in its entirety. Lose yourself to dance! <laughs> That's what was it. That? That's it. That's the whole remix. <laughs> and I want. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? So, what was that twangy thing at the end? Is that like what they? Is that their addition? <laughs> I, I guess. <laughs> Will, why don't you? Why don't you explain that? Sure. So, dark side, or for this particular remix album. Uh, Daft side. <laughs> Here's where the further information about Nicholas Jar I teased at the top of the show, and which you've all been waiting for with bated breath, comes up. So my coworker Bert turned me on to Nicholas Jar's record, Space is Only Noise, which is a stellar collection of downbeat dubby electronica that's just as accomplished plating up music concrete field recordings as it is coaxing beautiful transfixing melodies out of computers. ASMR music. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Spaces Only Noise was my favorite album of 2011. And then Daft Punk came out with Random Access Memories, which was my favorite album of 2013. And then a month after the Daft Punk album came out, Jar's side project with also generally talented electronic musician Dave Harrington Darkside remixed the album under the name Daftside, calling it Random Excess Memories Memories, and this mid-air collision between the two acts was by far the worst album I heard that year. <laughs> we could have picked a longer and more representative clip from that project than the full Lose Yourself to Dance remix that Mike just played, but it is really not worth it. Now, although I would love it if this annoying curio somehow spurred some people to check out Jar's solo work, the greater da danger is that you might hear Random Access Memories Memories and give his actual music a wide berth, which would be a shame. So please don't paint Jar with this brush that's missing a good two-thirds of its bristles, because <laughs> I cannot recommend Space's Only Noise highly enough. Uh, Jen, did you have anything more to say? Uh, let's see. My first bullet for this song is just, yay, fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think that also, like, this is also getting back to the dance music sound, I think, after the previous couple of tracks. And I think that it also, like, hits hardest on, like, what dance music is for. Like, the opening lines are like, I don't, I know you don't get a chance to take a break this often. I know your life is speeding and it isn't stopping. Like, it's like... 
dance music is to take a break and have fun and life is hard. So enjoy yourself every now and then, which is what dance music is for. And so that's always fun. I did want to talk a little bit about Pharrell and his role in publicizing this album, which was (laughs) really... (laughs) Because, so Rich and I watched the collaborators segments um, about this album in anticipation of this episode. And his is the one that I think got the most like viral play uh, before the album came out because it's kind of nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) He describes like the process of his collaborations with Daft Punk as something he couldn't remember. Like he was like, I got on a plane and I was really jet lagged. And then I just showed up in the studio and I don't remember what happened. And then I left two days later and I'd, and I'd helped produce two tracks. And it was just like, I'm I'm pretty sure he's doing a bit, but part of that bit seems to be that uh, he thinks Daft Punk are actually robots. Yeah. And he always (laughs) refers to them as the robots and, and, yeah, and never as people. I definitely agree. I think that it's all like a put on um, to help preserve their anonymity. I think that I like because I think that he actually knew them before the production of this album. And I think that because I also read an interview, a profile of Daft Punk where they quoted Pharrell and he basically gave one sentence where he referred to them as robots and nothing else. He was like, the robots don't want you to know anything about them, basically. <laughs> so I think that so I definitely think that he's kind of taking advantage of an opportunity to kind of do something fun and funny, but also like, you know, protect their anonymity as well. But it was one one interesting thing, like a mental image that I want to plant in people's heads that Pharrell mentioned in an interview is that he said that he thought David Bowie could have sung this song. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I could kind of hear that. I guess like, a, you know, he David Bowie worked with Nile Rodgers on Let's Dance. So I, I think mm-hmm. that's the reference point here. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. Yeah. But I just was like, hmm, that would be really, that. yeah, that would be interesting. So. All right. Well, it's track seven. Time for another epic. This is Touch. So Touch is the nine-minute centerpiece of Random Access Memories, and it opens with an atmospheric, nearly two-minute intro. <laughs> How they created this sound, Mike? Oh, that's, I think it's a, it's a vocoder, but with, um, it, but he's vocoded with just white noise. Oh, okay. Glad you're here, Mike. Yeah. (laughs) So after the intro, the curtains part and the epic really begins. Touch. I remember touch. Pictures came with touch. A painter in my mind Tell me what you see A tourist in a dream A visitor, it seems A half-forgotten song Where do I belong? Tell me what you see I need something more Suddenly alive, happiness arrive, hunger like a storm. How do I begin? A room within a room, a door behind a door. Touch, where do you lead? I need something more. 
me what you see. I need something more. Rock critic Stephen Hayden described Random Access Memories as, quote, the most expensive pseudo-ween album in history. And Touch is where I can most see where he's coming from, the way the group follows up the hard funk of Lose Yourself to Dance with something this eccentric and irreverent. So the lead vocals on this song are by Paul Williams, a songwriter and general cultural icon of the 1970s. He appeared on The Tonight Show more than 50 times. Uh, he co-wrote hits including We've Only Just Begun and Rainy Days and Mondays by The Carpenters, Evergreen, which is the love theme from the Barbra Streisand version of A Star is Born, and most importantly of all, Rainbow Connection from the Muppet movie. <laughs> Yay. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? He also co-starred in Brian De Palma's 1974 movie Phantom of the Paradise, which Jen and I watched this week. Uh, the movie was an enormous influence on Guimán and Tomat, who watched it something like 20 times at an art house when they were teenagers, and it is bonkers. Yeah, I think that the that the vocalization that they do to Paul Williams's voice at the beginning is a reference to that movie though. Mm-hmm. That's what like, cause there's a part where the, the phantom like tries to sing something in a studio and he sounds very similar to that. And the phantom studio is literally Tonto, the synthesizer system uh, Mike talked about uh, back in the, our episode on Stevie wonders inner visions. Uh, th- they used it without the permission of Robert Margoleff and Malcolm Cecil and they were not pleased. <laughs> So there's a lot going on in touch, and I'm going to try to move through it as efficiently as I can, but it's impossible to sum it all up. Uh, After the initial vocal section, there's an instrumental breakdown with a horn section, and this is the part of the song that has the most of that Muppet energy. (laughs) Jen calls this the Muppet part of the song. Imagine, like, Rolf coming in. Like, oh, yeah. On the pi- yeah, totally, that, right? That's Rolf the dog on piano. It 100% yeah. is. They're all at the Happiness Hotel just yeah. playing a, <laughs> a ragtime ditty. After that, the song slows down and the vocoders come in singing a lullaby of, hold on, if love is the answer, you hold on. until the vocals abruptly cut out, leaving you floating in an unsettling mix of spacey synths and chaotic orchestration. I love this song so much. (laughs) (laughs) But then, as if to rescue you, the hold-on vocal section returns, at first barely audible, but gradually building to a heavenly choir. This section actually reminds me of Pink Floyd's epic Echoes, the way the song sort of plunges you into a hallucinatory void before coming back to save you. Uh, Anyway, the choir builds to a crescendo and abruptly stops again, at which point Paul Williams returns for the epilogue. Touch, sweet touch, you've given me too much to feel, sweet touch. You've almost convinced me I'm real I need something more 
The AV Club's review of Random Access Memory is called Paul Williams a schmaltzy pop has-been, which really felt like kicking down. But at the same time, Williams has kind of made being a has-been his professional brand in his later career. Uh, He struggled with drug and alcohol addiction before going sober in the 90s, and he's very candid about his experience during his interview as part of the uh, Collaborators video series. Uh, Recording Touch was a cathartic, vulnerable experience for him, and the song really is a deeply emotional journey for something that seems so goofy on the surface. Yeah, this episode's Who Writes This Award goes to Touch. (laughs) Paul Williams (laughs) writes this. (laughs) Paul Williams and Daft Punk. Mm -hmm. And, And there's a second collaborator, too. Chris Caswell. Yeah, I thought the Giorgio Moroder song was going to be the big surprise on the album. Where did this come from? How did the guy who wrote Rainy Days and Mondays and The Rainbow Connection wind up on a Daft Punk album? Why is it so good? (laughs) First of all, I I absolutely agree. I was thinking the same thing about uh, Pink Floyd's Echoes. This has a very similar structure. It kind of takes you on. It has kind of the same uh, emotional arc. And there are parts where it comes this close to sounding like something out of a musical, which is the kind of thing that usually makes me itch uncontrollably. But it never crosses that line because it it all feels so genuine instead of like some clever theater kids putting on a show like you can tell Paul like you can tell Paul Williams is really feeling everything he's singing 100 percent. And it's just a fantastic vocal performance and a big choir singing about how love is the answer and you have to hold on should sound really empty and trite. And it doesn't. It's like when the moody blues tell you to love everybody and make them your friend and you want to go out and do it. (laughs) Also, I love the Muppet part and I love that I'm not the only one who calls it the Muppet part. (laughs) Paul Williams himself is kind of a human Muppet. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of is. So touch is my favorite song on this album. Like hands down the the first, (laughs) the first time that I heard this, I was like, (gasps) Well, I have had a very similar response to Mike of just like, oh, my God, like, this is unbelievable. Like, and and the way that Mike was describing also Giorgio Barbara of this being the song that you didn't realize that Daft Punk had in them. Yeah, I definitely felt that way listening to Touch, especially because it's such a departure from their previous sound of, you know, like we were talking about, like, you know, this bass heavy grooves, you know, percussion heavy, dancey and like and a lot of repetition of like, you know, you have like your basic component that gets repeated and built on. And none of that is in this song. And it's so surprising to listen to all of it develop. And um, so that was actually a question that I had for the group, because especially since you all are prog nerds. Is, <laughs> is this prog? Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't want to make assumptions about all. I don't want to sweep you all, you know, paint you all with the same brush. It's absolutely but. the proggiest song on the album. Uh, maybe either this or Georgia by Maroder. It's prog adjacent. I definitely. Yeah. <laughs> it's prog curious. Prog curious. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but also this song is really important to this album and to Daft Punk as a band. Like when they, this is actually the song that they started with when they were developing the album. 
And they described it as the centerpiece of what they wanted to build the album sound toward. And that's also why they put it as a central track in the album and put it in between like the two big singles. So in the video where they announced their breakup, they used this song and about two minutes of it of just like over empty desert. And, oh, wow. But this is also a song that's very important to them as a band that they kind of wanted to reach in their development. And also like drawing on this, like, you know, Paul Williams from the and part of why I think they I don't know if they reached out to him or he reached out to them. But you can if you watch the Phantom of the Paradise, you can also see how it influenced not necessarily their sound, but their aesthetic, at least in terms of the main character. The it's a it's basically a retelling of the Phantom of the Opera, but with 70s music and the main character has all of these terrible things happen to him so that he basically becomes a partially robotic person. He loses his voice and has to be, and has to get it replaced with a robot voice. He loses his teeth and has them replaced with metal teeth. But most importantly, for Daft Punk's aesthetic, he gets his face all scarred and he starts wearing this giant metal mask that covers his whole face. And he wears like this black leather outfit for the rest of the movie. So you see that and it's like, oh, yeah, I can see how this character who is like who is also obsessed with making music like that's just the one thing that he wants to do is like this half robot person who all he wants to do is just make music and have it performed and like yeah I can see how that is influential on their aesthetic so bringing in somebody like Paul Williams was like so it's also like part of their story too like to bring in this person who was important to them to make this song that you know means a lot to them Will what do you think of this one I'm going to be the sort of minor voice of dissent because to me, this one is a much less successful epic than Giorgio by Maroder. And part of that is just personal taste because I really dislike Paul Williams' unmodified simpering voice when it appears. <laughs> but even if they'd recruited a different soft pop relic whose singing is more tolerable, like, say, Barry Manilow, I don't, I also don't <laughs> think the many parts of the song work together as fluidly on touch as they did on Giorgio. It's an oddly blocky song to me. That said, though, a lot of those individual bits are very effective, such as that intro where the the white noise treatment they apply to William's voice possesses the same ultra creepy vibe as Kavinsky's terrific song Night Call from the Drive soundtrack. Yeah. I also very much enjoy the clinquant climactic segment with the choir and the strings, which are bedeviled by a blue bottle fly of a synth zipping all over the place. It's still a much better than good song, and I never skip it, but I just... I don't feel like it's quite up to the astonishing standards of the rest of the album. Oh, and uh, one last and one last tiny thing. This song is 250 tracks. 
<laughs> and on top of that, all of Random Access Memories was recorded on analog tape, which was then transferred digitally to Pro Tools. So I want to give a special shout out to the album's engineers, Peter Franco and Mick Gazowski, who accomplished a really mean feat in making this album sound as great as it does. The, yeah. There's an interview with Peter Franco on the website Sound on Sound for people who want to know the wonky technical details, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, this is an incredibly engineered album. It's clearly a hell of an amount of work, yeah. All right. Well... It's time for the song y'all came to hear. Track eight is Get Lucky. Yeah, I'm gonna go get lucky. Yeah, I'm gonna go get lucky. I'm gonna go get I'm gonna go get it. It never gets old. <laughs> I accidentally replaced the real clip with a clip from Lucky by Lauren Nero. Oh, was that not the original clip? <laughs> I love that album. It's a great album. <laughs> Uh, here's here's the real get lucky. Like the legend of the phoenix, all ends with beginnings. What keeps the planet spinning? Uh, the force from the beginning. I think we can move on to the next song. <laughs> so Get Lucky is the second team up on the album between Nile Rodgers and Pharrell Williams, and it was one of the biggest hits of 2013 worldwide. Uh, it stayed at number two on the U.S. Hot 100 for weeks, and it was held back from the top by Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines. Yay. Uh, that song also featured Pharrell Williams. It was a really big year for him. At least Get Lucky is about consent. <laughs> yep. Get Lucky is such a famous song that it has the distinction of being featured in a Weird Al polka medley. She's up all night till the sun. I'm up all night to get some. She's up all night for good fun. I'm up all night to get lucky. We're up all night till the sun. We're up all night to get some. We're up all night for good fun. We're up all night to get lucky. 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 As the adage goes, you know you've really made it when Weird Al does a version of your song. So I've never written a song, but it must feel really great to know that you've written a surefire hit. Daft Punk clearly knew what they had with Get Lucky. It, it was all over the marketing campaign for this album, which included a trailer at the Coachella Valley Music Festival, uh, teaser promos on Saturday Night Live, and the aforementioned Collaborators YouTube series. Uh, and on top of that, they absolutely blanketed major cities in billboards and posters. Uh, I remember first hearing about this album from a poster outside of a bar, and it didn't even have the title or the name Daft Punk. Uh, just the composite illustration of the robot heads. This album was everywhere in 2013 in kind of a charmingly old school way. And this song was like its ambassador. 
So uh, as I get older and recognize fewer and fewer songs on the Billboard charts, I take comfort in those rare moments when I get really into a huge hit single alongside the rest of the world. It doesn't happen very often anymore. Uh, for the 2010s, that list basically consists of Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen, Cheap Thrills by Sia, No Tears Left to Cry by Ariana Grande, and Get Lucky. It's in that rare class of songs that I've heard dozens of times, but I'm still not even close to getting tired of it. It's six minutes long, and those minutes just fly by. I, I can't believe the song is that long. Uh, it's easy to get lost in all of the technical details on this album, like key signatures and vintage vocoders, but you know none of that would matter if it wasn't fun to listen to, and they really nailed it with this song. Yeah, huge hit singles that I also like are even rarer recurrences. I think before <laughs> Get Lucky, the last time that happened was Hey Ya. So <laughs> I, I I definitely remember what a big deal this song was. People were losing their minds and they'd only heard 15 seconds of it. I do wish Pharrell had come up with a better line than let's raise the bar and our cups to the stars. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or at least something that doesn't combine my two least favorite things in the world, those being motivational platitudes and partying. <laughs> and uh, I also wish that that little synth line at the end got to stick around for longer. But those are tiny little nitpicks because this song has such an irresistible full band joie de vivre that I never hear from massive radio hits, which I know makes me sound like an old dinosaur, which maybe I am. Also, it's built around the same four chords as the verse section of Touch. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And normally I'd scoff and call that lazy songwriting, but here it's clearly conceptual continuity. Here, Fido. <laughs> uh, Jen, what do you think of this one? It's funny that you mentioned that about the chord sequence. I also found that it was in the same key as Touch, which I also thought was really interesting. Yeah. It's hard to say... Much of it's new about Get Lucky. I feel like so many people have heard this song and it's it's almost Star Wars-esque, like yeah. in that everybody, everybody knows it. Everybody has thoughts about it. So it's kind of hard to say anything new, but it's also once you start talking about it, like it's hard to stop because everybody does, like everybody does have thoughts about this and everybody knows it. And what I think that was interesting about this like, I think Rich mentioned it as an ambassador for the album, like, because I also remember when that 15 second clip went out, like, a month before the album came out and people just going, going nuts over it, just like getting really obsessed with just like, like the 10 hour version of just like this 15 <laughs> second clip that like made the rounds on YouTube. There's a 10 hour version of everything. Yep. Yeah, there is. And there was a 10 hour version of the 15 second promo clip that went out for this song ahead of time. And um, but one thing that I wanted to note that I thought was interesting was that Nile Rogers was really the driving force behind this song, perhaps unsurprisingly. Uh, I found an an interview with him where he said that they just kind of gave him the percussion line of the song and they said, we'll write around what you do. And so he kind of like wrote that guitar riff, like based on the rhythm. And then they kind of wrote the rest of the song around that guitar line. So it's kind of Niall Rogers is like at the center of it and everybody is kind of, mm -hmm. and the rest of the song kind of moves toward him, which is, which is like a really cool, like collaborative process. Cause I think that, was one of the things that Daft Punk they do is like they collaborated with people. They had guest artists on previous albums, but they didn't collaborate with other people to the extent that they did on this album. But it also one of the things about this song is that um, is the way that it's 
different, but not too different for their sound. Cause like, you know, we talked about things like touch and instant crush and like, and within that all sound really, really different from, and not what you would expect. But I think that get lucky is similar in some ways. Like you can definitely be like, Oh yeah, that's a Daft Punk song. But also it does take it in some new directions, which is. Well, especially when yeah. the vocoders come in, which to me is yeah. the, this is a Daft Punk song part of the song. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right, Will, what do you think? Pharrell may insist that Get Lucky isn't just about hooking up, which, fine, sure, Pharrell will all just, <laughs> yeah. we'll all just pretend that the narrator's singing about staying up all night playing an arcade's claw machine with a new lady friend. But... <laughs> Like Mike said, irresistible is the only word for it. Uh, Pharrell's a very likable singer, and Daft Punk's immutable instincts for showcasing and incorporating their collaborators are impeccable. So it's no surprise that it successfully top charts around the world. Around the world. Around the world. <laughs> around the Speaking world. Speaking of karaoke night. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Ideal karaoke song, that one. But you can sing that at karaoke. I have no doubt that you can. That sounds, it's the, it seems like the most trollish karaoke song you could possibly do. I think this is, uh, this becomes a a much better song if you imagine that it's actually about driving all night to go get a dog. (laughs) Named Lucky? Yes. (laughs) I agree. And that is how I will think of it from now on. I, I also, I also agree. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's terrific. It's I don't think it's too big a stretch to say that this song is up there with thriller era Michael Jackson in terms of its appeal to just about everyone who likes any sort of music. It's just an instant crowd-pleasing classic. All right. So we're going to move on now to track 9. This is Beyond. <laughs> I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Amanda. Terribly sorry. That was Beyond by the Moody Blues, a different pioneering synth rock band. (laughs) Oh, thank God. I thought we weren't going to get any Moody Blues in this episode. Okay. So here's, here's the real one. Sorry about that. Thank you. 
Yes, that is a full live orchestra you hear at the beginning of this song. Uh, the orchestra took up two full studios at Capitol Studios, and the group recorded orchestrations for almost every single song on the album, and then ended up leaving a lot of it on the cutting room floor. Uh, which brings me to my next point. This sucker was expensive. Uh, Gimon and Toma invested more than $1 million of their own money into random access memories. And in addition to the session musicians and orchestra and the use of analog tape, the album was an international production recorded at the Henson, Conway, and Capitol Studios in Los Angeles, Electric Lady Studios in New York, and Gang Recording Studios in Paris. So... As much as Daft Punk envisioned this album as like a new way forward for dance music, it's an album that you can only really make when you're wealthy and connected and willing to take a gamble on a big idea. And you hear that, Kevin Shields? They used their own money. (laughs) (laughs) Take that, my bloody valentine. Beyond is another Paul Williams co-write, and for me, it's the beginning of the album's third and final movement, sort of an after-hours come down after the parade of guest artists in the middle. Uh, After that expensive orchestral intro, the song turns into another slow jam in the style of the game of love, with uh, with Daft Punk's vocoder vocals making a return. Uh, So I haven't gotten into which members of Daft Punk sing on which tracks, in part because they don't really want listeners to know uh, and intentionally make it difficult to parse who is who. Uh, But apparently one verse in this song is sung by Toma and the other by Gimon. I'm not sure which one is which, but make of that what you will. It's a sad robot duet. Uh, Will, what do you think of this one? It's kind of odd to apply the word understated to a song that opens with a soaring orchestra and a booming timpani straight out of like (laughs) the 20th Century Fox production logo. (laughs) Yeah. But... The song thereafter just sort of glides right by, like Rich said, along the same lines of The Game of Love and Within. It's a perfectly engaging deep cut that certainly doesn't bring the album down in any way, but I I also can't think of much to say about it. Yeah, I don't have a ton to say about this one. It it just amuses me when that baritone vocoder comes in over this seductive Barry White lover man groove. (laughs) It's like, well, so so the groove for me, I, I've heard that it's been frequently compared to I Keep Forgetting by Michael McDonald, which is the, the song Warren G sampled for Regulate. Oh, yeah. I keep forgetting we're not in love anymore. I keep forgetting things will never be the same again. I keep yeah, it's 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 like the robot from Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. But now he's now he's being sexy. <laughs> I actually like this song, and the, I when the strings came in at the beginning, I felt like the first time I listened to this album was when the whole of it kind of clicked into place for me, when I started realizing that all of these sort of like sounds that were all over the place that they were drawing on were a feature and not a bug of what it is that they were trying to do. That one, that it's about the general history of dance music and their and, and their influences and the people that they think are important. And that's where you get into all of these people who have been on these collaboration songs that they've just, you know, had all in a row. But it's also a synthesis with their own personal story. And I think that that's also maybe why they kind of come back into the forefront with this song. But also what it really clicked into place for me here was how influential the Tron Legacy soundtrack was yeah. on the sound of this album. Uh, because... That was the first time they'd worked with, you know, big orchestras and 
strings and things and like composing for that kind of sound. And it seemed like it kind of opened new possibilities in their minds in terms of what they could make. And so I brought in one clip from the Tron Legacy soundtrack that I have here that kind of illustrates this sort of in-betweenness of their sound of like them moving from the sort of electronic sound to this more orchestral sound that they that they or just the sound that they use in this album. song is called The Return of Flynn. I realized that I didn't name it before I introduced it. And so it's has this similar sort of like structure of like a repeated motif, but it's constructed in this entirely different way. So that was so for Beyond it's part of the story of the album and is where it's, the story starts to as a whole starts to come into place for me. All right. So, let's move on now to track 10. This is Motherboard. Motherboard is the only instrumental on Random Access Memory, so I always forget that it exists. Uh, and that's unfair of me, because the electronica genre is filled with albums that are 100% instrumental. And if this song showed up on, say, a, a Boards of Canada album, it would absolutely be a highlight. It's all context. Uh, but Daft Punk's earlier albums are filled with instrumentals. But what distinguishes Motherboard is that, like the rest of Random Access Memories, it was recorded entirely on live instruments, which gives it a really earthy atmosphere that wasn't really present on their earlier compositions. Uh, even the water droplets in the outro were recorded on a soundstage, uh, when that so easily could have been a sample and absolutely nobody would have noticed. Uh, they really committed to the bit on this album. <laughs> Even taking into account Rich's correct point that, you know, not every great song needs vocals, especially in this genre, it plays a little fillery to me. You still can't fault its ambition. Like, it doesn't feel half-assed. The, the skittery drum work and what I think is a fretless bass in there are more great examples of the, the thoughtful flourishes that make this as extraordinary a record as it is. So there's, there's still something here. It just, it won't pop out at you but it's it's nice i really like this song i think that it's a very relaxing sort of song for me and 
it's one of those songs that, yeah, just sort of brings me to a sort of relaxed place in my mind. And it's and it kind of gives me a sensation of floating a little bit when I listen to it. Like it's by the Moody Blues. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, sure. I know that song. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so it it also to me feels the most throwbacky to their past sound as the sort of like repetition on like a theme. In keeping with a lot of their other songs, there's a lot of like blending of of like synths and live and live instrumentation. Um, But yeah, it's a song that I enjoy. Like I never skip it. And it's a song that I actually get stuck in my head a lot. But it is sort of like a break, like a a chance to sort of catch your breath in the album. But like I said, that's kind of what Daft Punk's music does for me. Uh, So this is like a good song to do that. Yeah, this one's always stood out to me for some reason. It's definitely more subtle than most of the rest of the album, uh, but I really like the the combination of sounds they've got going on here. Uh, Will mentioned the the fretless bass. Uh, of course, there's a percolating arpeggiated synth, but there's also <laughs> there's an acoustic guitar. Uh, you've got drums played with brushes. Uh, I think there's a talking drum and uh, some woodwinds that make me think of Philip Glass. <laughs> yes, totally. And uh, I really like that brief bit around like two thirds of the way in where this ominous drone just sort of floats through the song. Yeah, I feel bad just saying like, oh, it's an instrumental because it really is a dense production. <laughs> right. Yeah, everything on everything on this album is a set piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not the lack of vocals that I think is the deal breaker or anything. I just, for me, for whatever reason, it just doesn't land. And I should also note that I do tend to like the Daft Punk instrumentals a lot too. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. So I'm maybe I'm biased. <laughs> All right. Well, if we're done with Motherboard, let's move on to track 11, Fragments of Time. Yacht Rock! (laughs) (laughs) Setting sail on a smooth voyage. (laughs) More pedal steel. Yeah. Yeah. is probably the most straightforward composition on the album. It's got a lot of complex session playing, but it's free of most of the like jigsaw puzzle chopping and screwing you get on the rest of random access memories. It, it moves in a very linear fashion from point A to point B. No vocoder breaks, no speeches from the great masters of music, just good old-fashioned yacht rock. 
The meticulous, fussy level of production detail on this album reminds me a lot of Steely Dan's Asia, which we were which we covered back in episode 50. And this is the song here that most feels like it could fit in stylistically on that album. So the vocal on this song is from Todd Edwards, who had previously collaborated with Daft Punk on Face to Face, an amazing song quietly buried toward the end of Discovery. There's not much I know about you. Fear will always make you blind. But the answer is in clear view. It's amazing what you'll find face to face. By the time Edwards arrived in the studio, the arrangement for Fragments of Time was already finished, so he provided the melody and lyrics, which are probably my favorite lyrics on the album. If Give Life Back to Music is the statement of purpose for Random Access Memories, this song kind of feels like a self-aware commentary on that statement, like an acknowledgement that this whole project is just an exercise in nostalgia. And that, that might sound like a depressing outlook on art, but I think Todd Edwards' bittersweet delivery does a lot to sell the sentiment. Uh, also, he does one of the collaborators interviews we talked about earlier, and he uh, he just looks like some guy from New Jersey, whereas based <laughs> on the vocal, I expect him to look like, you know, oats, uh, or at least like, he definitely like sounds like he has a mustache and he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Will, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. First thing I heard was uh, that definite Steely Dan vibe, along with maybe a bit of the Doobie Brothers and a sprig of Hall and Oats whipped into it. It's certainly not yeah. what I would have expected out of a Daft Punk collaboration with house DJ Todd Edwards. Yeah, who's mentioned in the song Teachers <laughs> that Jen talked about earlier. Oh, is he? I didn't yep. I didn't notice that. Mm-hmm. From the one album of his that I'd heard, Prima Edizione, I had him pegged as... Well, I didn't think the album was interesting or lively enough for him to even deserve a proper peg. I would have stuck him with one of those plastic pegs you use to represent your family in the life <laughs> board game, only your dogs chew it, chewed it all up so the head's missing and it won't fit in the holes properly anymore. <laughs> By peg, do you mean like Steely Dan's peg? Or, or is that just a crap? Oh, for Pete's sake. <laughs> I actually thought you meant that for a second. I'm, I'm not <laughs> schooled enough in Steely Dan to be able to make that sort of pun, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> it will come back to you. Uh, his <laughs> his uh, Edwards vocals here are a pris- pristine, ebullient impression of 70s AOR singers. And on most dance or electronic albums, this would be an anomalous left turn that would totally take you out of the trance that you were in. But especially in the chorus here, Daft Punk is careful to hang on to and incorporate the vibe that they've established throughout random excess memories while clearly taking joy and seeing just how far they can push it. So for a long time, this was actually the big dud on the album for me. I'm less of a Yacht Rock fan than some of my (laughs) podcast friends are. I think I'm really the only one. (laughs) (laughs) That might be. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely a fan of, you know, the the Yacht Rock series. But, you know, unless it's Steely Dan, uh, I'm I'm probably not getting on your boat. Uh, (laughs) And this song has has always reminded me less of Steely Dan and more of a kind of gross Doobie Brothers Eagles mashup. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's it's definitely grown on me uh, uh, over the years, and it's got some really cool little details, like all those chopped up sounds on right. the chorus. And I I, th- I think Todd Edwards was also responsible for those. They they just gave him the song and told him do what you do, and he just went to town <laughs> chopping the tape up. And then they made that the cor- and then they made that the chorus, and uh, it's also got that wild talk box solo, which I somehow <laughs> never really paid attention to before. 
But uh, Jen, what do you think? Yeah, so I think that it's interesting in terms of album sequencing, how this comes right after Motherboard, which is like the super futuristic spacey sounding song, because when it comes back to this from the very beginning, for me, it brings up this sort of feeling of coming back home or like coming back to Earth and like to our time. So what's also interesting about this song is that it's in C major uh, the, as a key and which is the sort of like basic like so when Rich was talking about like how it's this sort of like the most basic kind of sound that's like the most basic key. I'm not like an expert in music composition but I do know that C major is like the the most basic uh, compositional key that you can use and it's one of only two songs on the entire album that's in a major key. The other is uh, the next song doing it right. Also, Beyond Yacht Rock classified this as on the boat according to their their <laughs> scale of whether or not a song is yacht rock. Yeah, it's not as yacht rock as like what a fool believes, but it scores pretty high on the Yachtsky scale. All right. Well, let's get to that next song that Jen mentioned. Uh, track 12 is Doing It Right. Doing it right. Everybody will be dancing and we're feeling it right. Everybody will be dancing and be doing it right. Everybody will be dancing and we're feeling it right. Everybody will be dancing tonight. Doing it right. Everybody will be dancing and we're it right. Everybody will be dancing and if you lose your way tonight, that's how you know the magic's right. Doing it right, everybody will be dancing and we're feeling it right. Everybody will be dancing and be feeling This song might end my marriage. <laughs> Uh, Jen adores doing it right, but it's never really done it for me. And it's let alone right. <laughs> and it's probably tied with the game of love for my least favorite song on the album. Uh, now, Random Access Memories bottoms out at pretty good, so I think it's a perfectly fine song. But what holds it back from greatness to me is that it's very repetitious, but doesn't really develop or build. Like for all the snark people throw at songs like Around the World for being repetitive, there's usually a lot of variety in the margins in a Daft Punk song. Whereas this one just kind of runs in place. I'm sorry, Jen. Oh, I'm super mad about mm -hmm. that. <laughs> <laughs> so the guest vocal is by Panda Bear from the band Animal Collective. He fits in really well, which is a relief because I've listened to like five or six Animal Collective albums and I, I just don't have the right code in my brain or the right drugs to crack their music. Like it, it feels like half of it is clanging guitar noise for sitting around the campfire and, and the other half is come dance with the animals on our island. I wonder if my mic picked you up singing that. I hope that it did. <laughs> And for what it's worth, Panda Bear does have a few really solid solo albums, particularly Person Pitch from 2007. Uh, he's much better when he's separated from the collective. Like Seven of Nine. <laughs> we are the Animal Collective. Resistance is futile. Uh, you're on every episode now, Jen. <laughs> I'm sad that I got that one. <laughs> Why? 
Seven of nine is great. All right, Jen, are you two going to need counseling after this episode? Yeah, I'll get the divorce papers written mm-hmm. out. I, I feel like I need to, like, like come out more fighting. Uh, <laughs> I'm just like, I like this song. I think it's catchy and fun. But it's also, like, 90 degrees out today. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm like, like, do I have the energy to have a fight about doing it right? I don't know that I do. But I do love this song. I think it's just really fun like it and it, it and it also has a sort of like the daft punk sound like it has a lot of it. and it's also notable that this track is the only one on the album that's all synth there's no live instrumentation on this song one thing that i did want to note though because i was looking this up on the daft punk fan wiki and it says for this song <clears throat> doing it right received a positive critical reception with some reviewers opining it as the group's best work out of the entire lp which it, but it provides no citation or review <laughs> that, that's, that like many people that are saying says that yeah, many people like come on, this is a wiki. There's supposed to be a citation needed like note in there. But I thought that that was funny that yeah, after the discuss like when Rich and I have been talking about this album, we have been arguing about this song, but I think that we that maybe we should have saved it for the show Rich cuz now I'm like, "Eh, whatever." <laughs> <laughs> you don't like <laughs> You don't like this song, that's fine. It turned out to be a reconcilable difference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, Will, what do you think of this one? Well, it's easily the most enjoyment I've gotten out of anyone involved with Animal Collective. <laughs> I I don't know that I've ever even successfully sat through an, a proper Animal Collective album because it's like they've taken an Of Montreal album, sucked out all the most obnoxious parts, and left behind all the emotion, humor, and songcraft, like an Asobuco that's somehow even more nauseating than actual Asobuco. And Panda Bear's solo albums... Are, yeah, they're a little more tolerable, but they're still, to me, very much hamstrung by an insufferable dedication to being both smug and twee. <laughs> Actually, let me change that. But Daft Punk finally locates a decent use for this clown, giving him the firm structure <laughs> his aimlessly meandering music generally lacks. He usually goops his vocals up by covering them in so much reverb that it's like using an entire roll of bubble wrap to ship a salt shaker. But by extricating his vocals from beneath that annoying defense mechanism, his presence here is that of a 60s beach pop singer who somehow strolled onto an 80s new wave track. So doing it right is no, I'm sorry, doing it right is no work of genius, but it's fun enough and it made me tolerate Panda Bear. I like solo Panda Bear just fine, but I've also... Never been able to get into Animal Collective, aside from Meriwether Post Pavilion, which is the most popular Animal Collective album because it sounds the least like Animal Collective. But anyway, on the one hand, sure, this song doesn't ever really go anywhere, but I also really don't care because I love that vocoder hook so much. (laughs) This might actually be the song from Random Access Memories that gets stuck in my head the most. I will just be going about my day just thinking, doing it right. Everybody will be dancing if we're doing it right. It's kind of, I think it's designed for that. It's yeah. just designed to just like grab onto your brain. It's an earworm. Ready-made earworm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We are almost to the end of the album. It is time for the electrifying conclusion. This is track 13, Contact. As we look back at the earth, it's uh, up at about 11 o'clock, about, uh, well, maybe 10 or 12 di- earth diameters, uh, 
Contact contains the only sample on random access memories. Uh, though if you want to be nitpicky, it contains two samples. The first is a clip from the Apollo 17 space mission that Gimon and Toma got from NASA. Uh, and apparently NASA was full of nerds. Who'd have thought? Uh, and was all too happy to give the clip to daft frickin' punk. The other one is that big synth swell at the beginning, which comes from the song We Ride Tonight from the Australian band The Sherbs. Uh, I'm going to play a clip because it's one of the funnier examples of this clip doesn't go where you think it's going to go. <laughs> yeah, I love that Daft Punk took a song that sounds like you give love a bad name and turned <laughs> it into a vaporwave anthem. <laughs> this is why I love samples. Uh, as long as you give proper attribution and compensation to the original author, I, I don't understand why a melody or instrumental phrase has to be confined to one song for all of eternity. Uh, I like that that bit got to become contact. Nonetheless, it really tickles me that a sample-heavy band like Daft Punk used only one sample on the entire album without sacrificing their identity or compositional ethos. It feels like such a defiant middle finger to critics as they blast off into space and wave goodbye with the other hand. When they released Random Access Memories, it, it wasn't clear that this would be the final Daft Punk song, uh, but listening to it today, Contact is such a fitting, triumphant exclamation point for their career. Well, this is, it's an unexpected parallel, but the Butthole Surfers did something quite <laughs> similar on their unsettling song, The Last Astronaut, from 2001's Weird Revolution, an album you haven't heard and don't need to. <laughs> that song's also kind of an amorphous noise pile that's driven by what's meant to be an intercepted communication to mission control rather than proper lyrics or vocals. I like the Butthole Surfers one just a few microns better because I think Gibby Haynes does some uncharacteristically subtle chilling work playing an astronaut who's slowly realizing that he's looking down on an extinction event happening on Earth. <laughs> but I like Contact a whole lot as well. Following the NASA intro, we get that invigorating balance of uh, of the harrowingly heavy church organ from the Sherb song, 
along with light-fingered, blazing drum work from Omar Hakim before they just ditch that idea about halfway into the song and spend the next three minutes bashing out a messy, noisy liftoff back to Daft Punk's home planet. The seemingly spontaneous mishmash of sound is certainly an interesting way to conclude an album and ultimately a career that's otherwise so obviously fussed over in an incredibly fiddly way. It's the sound of two overclocked robots reaching a moment of unquestionable victory, as it should be. So as this podcast's leading proponent of noise, I love that Daft Punk chose to end what wound up being their final album with an extended eardrum-destroying coda that sounds like you're burning up on re-entry. It's the sort of thing that sends <laughs> most people scrambling to turn the volume down, but has me thinking, my God, it's full of stars. The climax of this song might be based around what I like to call the chord progression that sells, but like a lot of things, Daft Punk just know how to use it better than most. I really can't think of a better way to have ended the album. Also... I don't know if this was intentional, but the NASA clip at the beginning sure sounds like he's describing a disco ball. And, <laughs> and holy even if, shit. And even if that wasn't intentional, I've just decided that that's what the song is about. It's too perfect. <laughs> that's terrific. My God, it's full of disco. My God, it's full of sequins. <laughs> I looked up what it actually was, but I'm, now I think that I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I don't want to know. Yeah, I'll let the mystery be. Uh, so I also really like this song. I really like that the album ended with it. I like that it ends on something weird and dissonant. <laughs> Daft Punk regarded this album as really personal, and it feels like this is a very personal way to end this album. Like, this is definitely not a song that's interested in pleasing other people. <laughs> and I really like that about it. It also, in that it draws on... Uh, samples it is the most like their old stuff like their old sound and it kind of reminds me of a vera disco or vera disco from discovery in some places like which is a song that i really like on discovery and maybe that's weird oh very disco i just yeah. got very it disco yeah yeah rich is the one who pointed out that pun to me well i well i learned it from the ost party episode that i plugged earlier oh but one thing that i thought was interesting just listening to this track again just now was that typically on daft punk songs they take samples of live instrumentation and then add their synth sound to it but on this one they take a sample of synth sound and add live instrumentation to it of the drums and the bass which is kind of like a reverse of what it is yeah, that they usually inversion. do when they sample a song. Yeah, it's an inversion. So it's so it's building on what it is that they've always done, but also doing something entirely new. And I really like the way that this sound that it ends, like because like Mike was describing, it has like all of this like sound that's coming from all over the place, and then it kind of just cuts off almost. It has this feeling of like fading out. Um, it kind of reminded me of like losing a signal uh, from uh, from something as like from a radio station or a rocket ship as it gets out of range. And it also kind of reminded me of the end of Giorgio by Marauder in that way of just sort mm -hmm. of like it, it, it kind of like boils down to this one sort of sound at the end that, that then just like suddenly disappears. So, yeah, it is a very like appropriate way to end an album that's also like announcing the 
how big in scope it is and also just like okay and we're done (laughs) (laughs) and jen you found out that like uh, i mean it's it was like thematically significant that they pulled a clip from the apollo 17 space mission right like that yeah because that was the final moon mission right and the person who's audio they used the person speaking is gene cernan who was actually the last astronaut to leave the surface of the moon on the last lunar mission so he's the last person to have walked on the surface of something other than earth wow mm-hmm. yeah so that they, they they knew this was the last song come on yeah <laughs> all right well we have made it all the way to the end of the album rich what are your final thoughts So I was into Daft Punk before Random Access Memories, but I have to admit, I didn't know that they had an album like this in them. And I don't think Giman and Toman knew it either. Like, where the hell do you go after an album like this? And what's sad but kind of bittersweet to me is that as much as they aim to set a new direction for music with this album, this isn't a formula that could hold. The production is too expensive, too reliant on live musicians for an age of beat libraries and, you know, social distancing. And I think Daft Punk realized that. The title Random Access Memories is a cheeky computer joke, but it's interesting to me that they named it after Random Access Memory, which is a computer's fleeting short-term memory, uh, rather than read-only memory, which is the, like the permanent memory that stays on your hi- on your hard drive. Uh, part of that is that Random Access Memories is just a catchier name than read-only memories, but uh, I think they also knew that all of this was ephemeral, that eventually all of the marketing and think pieces would fade away, and the album would become just a fragment of time, and that's fine. Yeah, I- it's sad and all that we're probably not going to get another Daft Punk album. I mean, maybe they'll get back together. I don't know. But uh, I think it makes sense that this would be their last album because I, I, I'm not sure how they would top it. I don't know how they could follow this up with something that wouldn't be disappointing. I think this is they, – they aimed incredibly high and they absolutely hit the mark. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's like the pinnacle of, of everything they really set out to do. And once you've done that, what else are you going to do? But I do think, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, the album being a fleeting fragment of time. And music doesn't need to last forever. But I, I think people will be coming back to this one for a while. I think it'll go down as a classic. Yeah. But uh, Jen, what do you think? It's funny because the my remarks about this album are very similar to what you just said, Mike. Oh. Just like, how could they ever, how could they ever top this album? Like whatever they would produce next would be a disappointment. The way that I think of it is that their first two albums are considered genre defining classics. Their third album is fine and is, but is widely regarded as a disappointment. And then they released a fourth album, which is also considered like this huge, like classic masterpiece. And it's like, when you've released four albums and three of them are considered like huge classics, how do you possibly live up to that? And it's not something they seem to be super interested in doing. Um, and I also wanted to quote something from an interview that they did in advance of this uh, album coming out because they like they did an interview with GQ in February before the album came out in May 2013. And they actually thought that the album would bomb because they thought it was just too personal. I mean, well, who knows? You know, like that, like that's, you know, probably Mm. all part of their very cultivated persona. True. But a quote from Thomas Vangelter, he said, the thing we can ask ourselves at some point is like, we're making music for 20 years. How many bands and acts do you know that are still making good music after 20 years? It always sucks. Almost always, you know? 
And that was before the album even came out. And so the before they would even have the pressure of like, well, how do you make a better album than random excess memories? And so whatever they were, whatever pressure they were already feeling before this album, it would get worse on whatever they released next. And so um, I'm really glad that this album exists. And I and doing this episode has really deepened my appreciation for what this album is doing in a lot of ways. Daft Punk is one of my favorite bands and I'm sad in a sense that they that they won't be releasing anymore but I also wasn't expecting that really. And I'm happy with what we have. And Will, what are your final thoughts? Yeah, I think it it's kind of odd to think that an album so built on precision welded nostalgia could also sound so new and modern. But Random Excess Memories totally threads that needle and I agree. I think it'll continue feeling that way in decades to come. They've made something timeless and endlessly re-listenable. You know, usually I, I come away from these episodes having listened to the album we covered so many times that I feel like I won't want to listen to it again for at least a year, no matter how much I like it. But I could totally see going for a drive next weekend and listening to Random Access Memories. It's a lustrous, enchanting experience that speaks to your head as well as your body, and I expect to feel that way forever. All right. So, for everyone out there who has heard Random Access Memories and liked it, what should they listen to next? Well, I'm going to recommend Discovery, which would have been my second choice to cover for this show. Uh, I think the first two Daft Punk albums are just terrific, but uh, Discovery has all of the 80s flourishes I adore so much, so I've always held it in a bit higher regard. Uh, It got panned by critics when it came out, and Will is notably wrong about it, uh, but it slowly (laughs) proved itself to be their most influential album because it did a lot to bring about the synth revolution and dance music that fully took hold by the 2010s. Uh, We've already played like five or six clips from the album, but the hell with it. I'm going to play another one. Uh, This is Digital Love, my favorite song on the album. This sounds like Super Tramp. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) This is the other Daft Punk song that Rich and I have arguments about, though, because (laughs) I don't love this song. Why don't you play Believe it or not, I'm walking around. (laughs) (laughs) I clipped that part in particular because the Wurlitzer electric piano there is meant to sound like super tramp. And I'm like, guys, you you wanted your 2001 dance pop song to sound like super (laughs) tramp. I love you crazy robots. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And if you like Daft Punk and want more music in their wheelhouse, uh, I recommend checking out the band Justice, another French electronic duo who I'd describe as a messier, scrappier Daft Punk, uh, sort of like if they'd built on the sound of human after all. Uh, they, They have three albums and they're less consistent than Daft Punk's, but they're still a lot of fun and they're all worth checking out. What do you recommend? Well, 
If Random Access Memories has you casting about helplessly for another hugely catchy, slick album that draws on the nose candy superficiality of the 70s and 80s and modernizes it with the help of lots of guest contributors that include a member of The Strokes, Neon Neon's Stainless <laughs> Style is probably the album for you. Neon Neon is a collaboration between... Gruff Reese, the supremely talented frontman of the Super Furry Animals, and Boom Bip, an electronic hip-hop producer who has a couple entertaining solo albums under his belt, too. Stainless Style doesn't have nearly the production budget of Random Access Memories, but it's totally got the hooks and the brains. It's a witty concept album about the fascinating rise and ignominious fall of John DeLorean, the automobile engineer responsible for the gullwing car we all know from Back to the Future, as well as the target of a failed FBI drug sting. And apart from a few enjoyable, surprising detours into flat-out hip-hop, the music is a joyous, synth-heavy recreation of the new wave music that was hanging tin on the airwaves while DeLorean was riding high and people thought it was cool to say things like hanging tin. You and I get along famously I need you and you need me Staring from the cover of a magazine Selling our souls for the highest fee And I love you Yes, I love you if the price is right And I lost you so I've got two recommendations. The first is a Daft Punk album. Uh, it's their live album, Alive 2007, uh, recorded on their their triumphant tour where they had the big pyramid. Uh, the sound, the record, the recording quality isn't the best. It kind of sounds like they they took a bootleg recording from the audience and just released it. But it, it's it's easy to get used to after you know once once you after a few minutes it's really cool because it gives a lot of songs from Human After All kind of a reason to exist like songs <laughs> that were annoying on that album suddenly have this uh, new purpose when mixed together with all these other songs and I've got a clip here that shows that this is my favorite moment on the album where uh, crescendals and Television Rules the Nation crash into each other. And instead of creating a horrible train wreck, they create this terrifying monster super train that eats everything. <laughs> it's a Voltron. Not a super tramp. And uh, my other recommendation is uh, a Giorgio Moroder album. If for for those of you uh, who might be interested to to hear more of what he was about, it's from 1977. It's called From Here to Eternity, and uh, I'm mainly recommending it on the strength of the the 15 minute suite that takes up the whole first side of the album. And the clip here is is really from kind of a grout track, uh, but I I just love it. It's called Faster Than the Speed of Love. <laughs> Yeah. 
obviously it's it's impossible to tell that he had such a, a huge influence on Daft Punk. <laughs> <laughs> but Jen, what do you recommend? First, I'm really uh, glad that you played that clip from Alive 2007. That's also one of my favorite moments from that album. And that is probably the album that I would have recommended. That's like my real recommendation. <laughs> but I also would recommend, uh, I, I, I don't know, like I've been trying to decide because on the one hand, if you want to hear Daft Punk's old sound, like as part of their history, homework is really interesting to listen to, especially comparing like what they started out as and what seeds got planted for what ultimately they developed into random access memories. But I also think the Tron Legacy soundtrack is really worth listening to. It's a really interesting, like it's not one of their like four studio albums, but it is a very interesting point in the development of their sound they do some really cool and um and interesting things and yeah so they're both i'll recommend them both they're both really worth your time daft punk has five albums like you can listen to all of them (laughs) but if you're interested in sci-fi inflected dance music and that's actually from the 70s i have to recommend Jeff Wayne's musical version yes. of the War of the Worlds. Never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> the chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, he said. The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one. But still, they come. It is a disco prog uh, epic about an invasion of the earth by Martians. And it's, and I heard about it from this show. Is it rich? You probably know what episode specifically that's from. Yeah. For listeners who don't know our entire catalog, uh, John, our our co-host, John McFerrin talked about that one on episode 34. And he's probably so happy (laughs) that I'm recommending this album because I was apparently the only discord and rhyme spouse who didn't hate it. (laughs) (laughs) I, it had a very mixed reaction among like spouses uh, and significant others in Discord and Rhyme, but uh, it, it, it's probably your favorite album we've covered, right? Wow, um, almost certainly. That's amazing. <laughs> it's definitely my. It's, it, it's certainly my favorite album I've discovered from this show. I think that it uh, that it's doing a lot of the same things musically and um, tonally and what's the thematically as Daft Punk is doing uh, in a really fun way. I really, really enjoy that album. Unlike Mike, perhaps I really enjoy musicals and I really (laughs) like the, the, all of the musical energy of that album. All right. So next episode, our next episode is about the Rolling Stones. We could have picked something like sticky fingers or let it bleed, but that wouldn't be the discord and rhyme way. No, instead we're all going to get lost on a psychedelic trip as Phil takes John, Dan, and Rich through the Stones' strange and often maligned 1967 space exploration, Their Satanic Majesty's Request. Where's that joint? I mean, roll credits. All right, Jen, these Star Trek episodes aren't going to watch themselves. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Random Access Memories and other albums by Daft Punk at your local record store or directly from Daft Punk at daftpunk.com. You can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. We've also made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com. 
You can follow Discord and Rhyme at DiscordPod on Twitter for news and updates. Editing and production on this episode is by Rich, Godspeed. And special thanks to me for production assistance, our theme song, and original music. Yeah, Mike is the robot with the stormtrooper-looking helmet, and I'm the robot with the European biker-looking helmet. (laughs) See you next album, and keep as cool as you can. As you examine your life, do you find you have missed your humanity? I have no regrets. No regrets? That is a human expression. Yes. Fascinating.